What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 48 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Oli Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded, pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. Being the 48th episode, and with one each month, this episode marks the four-year anniversary for the ERRR podcast. This is a huge milestone, and I'm ecstatic that we've made it this far. And for this episode, it was an absolute pleasure to have Martin Robinson on to discuss his excellent book, Trivium 21C. Martin Robinson spent 20 years teaching in state schools in London, spending time in the roles of drama and English teacher, head of department, head of faculty, advanced skills teacher, and assistant head teacher. Martin gained national and international acclaim for the wonderful work he did with his drama students, as well as his subsequent work and writing. At one point during that journey, Martin decided to dive deeper, really deep, about 3,000 years deep into the history of education, and really, the history of thought, to try to pull together the threads of teaching and learning over time and try to determine what lessons could be brought forwards into the present. The framework that he landed upon is the trivium, and it's a wonderful model that brings together many of the elements of education that have been discussed on the ERRR podcast over the past four years, and much more besides. It's a model that helps us to get past false dichotomies and understand how different instructional practices can fit together to produce an empowering overall education. Now, I've played with the order of this episode a little because it got super long and I wanted to ensure that the key model of the trivium that Martin presents comes out front and centre. As such, apart from the very initial questions, we start the podcast right in the thick of our discussion, where I first ask Martin what the trivium is and we take it from there. We discuss much more prior to this though, such as the detailed history of Martin's career, creativity and constraints, his methods for drama teaching, the shift towards managerialism that Martin saw over his 20 years as a teacher, and how the birth of his daughter propelled him into his educational search. In this episode, I've included this portion of the interview as an appendix, so that those who are keen to hear more, just keep listening. Also, this month's episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational. A book from John Cat that I'd like to highlight this month is 10 Things That Schools Get Wrong by the neuroscientist Jared Cooney Horvath and the Associate Director of the Institute of Positive Education, David Bott. This book covers a huge range of topics including grading, 21st century skills, mindset, computers, homework, and in each case aims to couple leading research with pragmatic philosophy on each of these topics. I just finished the chapter on expertise, experience, and the role of teachers in moving the profession forwards, and I found it super interesting. They start the chapter by highlighting that, for example, at a 2019 National Accountancy and Tax Conference, seven out of eight of the featured presenters were practicing accountants or tax lawyers. Meanwhile, at the 2019 ASCD Conference on Teaching Excellence, only one of the 13 features presented was a practicing teacher. And they use this fact and several more as a springboard to discuss in more detail the relationship between theory and practice in education and how they suggest we've lost our way a bit. It was a great chapter and very short too, and I really look forward to reading more. I've linked to that book, 10 Things That Schools Get Wrong, in the show notes. 
Also from John Cat is my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. John Sweller, the originator of Cognitive Load Theory, has described this book as an indispensable guide to cognitive load theory for teachers. And Dylan William has generously remarked, I don't often say this, but this is a book that every teacher should read. And don't forget the wonderful books that we've discussed in recent episodes of the ERRR podcast too, including Fear is the Mind Killer, Rosenshine's Principles in Action, Dual Coding with Teachers, and many others too. You can get 30% off all these titles, including my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, with a discount code ERRR30. That's ERRR30 for 30% off all books from John Cat. Just follow the link from the show notes or search John Cat Educational on Google. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 48 of the ERRR podcast with Martin Robinson. Martin Robinson, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you for inviting me. Absolute pleasure, Martin. Now, the question we always start with, Martin, is if you meet someone at a party and they say, hi, Martin, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, I tend to shuffle a bit on my feet, look down to the ground and answer in a very embarrassed way, education consultant, <laughs> and then quickly move the conversation onto something else. Fair enough. Like football. By the way, I'm in football. You see, I can do it now. We can talk football, we can talk comedy, we can talk theatre, we can talk politics, we can do anything else, but not education consultancy. Well, un- unfortunately, I only know how to talk about education, so that'll have to be the topic for today. Oh, well. <laughs> how long has that been your answer for? Ah, uh, that's a very good question. Gosh, 2012, 20. 11, something like that, 2013, I don't know, somewhere around that time. So it's seven, seven, eight years. Yeah, I still think of myself as as a teacher as well, because I did that for 20, 20 odd years before. So that also was something I would sort of answer the question in an embarrassed way as well. And sort of, I, I don't often talk about what I do. I, th- I think that's the least interesting thing about people. Well, that's, that's, that's what all. they think matters. Okay. Well, that's, that's an interesting <laughs> distinction. I like it. All right. Well, now this is the topic of today's discussion in general, but just to get a, a bulletproof definition from you or, or a one sentence summary, what do you think should be the purpose of school-based education? Let's just reduce it to one word, freedom. Well, let's continue to expand on that throughout the rest of the interview, I guess. Did you want to add anything else now to that? <laughs> no. All right, let's let the cliffhanger. You've got to hang around, folks, to get to get the rest of it. I mean, freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of being able to perhaps make your own choices and mistakes and and find within education a way to free people rather than to constrain them to the point where they have to do what they're told and, and all those things. I mean, uh, the difference between perhaps a, a good Australian education and a bad North Korean one. Okay, got it. I remind our listeners that in this episode, the extended introductory discussion is included as an appendix, and we now fast forward through the interview and continue from the point at which Martin and I begin discussing the trivium in detail. Enjoy. All right. Well, we've buried the lead for our listeners, Martin. We're now one hour in, and I can ask the question, what is the trivium? The trivium, literally, is three ways or three roads, and those three ways are grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. You will also, if you look into the trivium, see dialectic called logic and or logos. 
but I use the term that is used quite a lot as well, which is dialectic. And I think it gives us more substance and a wider way of seeing the trivium. But it basically is three things, grammar, dialectic, rhetoric. And it's part of the medieval curriculum, which were the seven liberal arts put together by Boethius and Capella. And there were four others, which were the quadrivium, which come after the trivium. But we're not interested in that. <laughs> we're just interested in the trivium, okay? I don't want to go into the quadrivium. But the, the big difference between the two, which you might be interested in, is the trivium is of word and the quadrivium is of number. And in the medieval times, you had to study the trivium first before you went on to the quadrivium. All right. Let's go a bit deeper. So you've got grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. What's grammar? Well, obviously, if you use the term grammar, people have an understanding of it in terms of, let's say, English grammar, French grammar, Latin grammar, or whatever. And it, yes, that is part of it. But grammar to in the medieval time was foundational knowledge of all things. So everything has its grammar. And if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, it has huge amounts on English grammar, blah, 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 all those things. But it also has a thing that, as an example, the grammar of wine. And this is very Oxford English Dictionary for you. Yes, the grammar of wine. Yes, not of beer, of course, or Red Bull or anything like that, but wine. So express this to people. All right, how do you know? You know, let's say you go to a taste test of, of wine tasting and you're blindfolded and you're tasting it. And some people will say, well, that's wine. Some people say, well, that's red, that's white, or that's old world and new world, or that's French, that's, or which grape? Oh, they'll tell you it's a Chardonnay. Or they'll be able to tell you which year it was <laughs> and, and, and then which vineyard it was. And then perhaps which hillside in which vineyard? The terroir, terroir, you know, it's chalky, it's this, that, and the other. So they know the grammar of wine. So it's, it's foundational knowledge that opens up the world to you by knowing that stuff. So it's stuff to know, the stuff you need to know. I know this stuff. This is the stuff I need to know. So foundational knowledge of all things. Everything has that. So precepts, concepts, everything you need to know about a subject. It's the structure of the subject and it's the connectivity you know, grammar is about pulling things together as well, making meaning, making sense of things, creating meaning out of things. And dialectic includes logic, the logic of the subject, the logic of the knowledge you've been, you know, the foundational knowledge, the logic of things. It also includes practice, the doing. It includes experimenting. Can we, I just want to explore grammar just a little bit more, if that's okay. Why is it called grammar? Right. <laughs> Why is it as opposed to being called anything else? Yeah, just like knowledge or foundational knowledge or do you, do you know why is it called grammar and why have we come to associate that word grammar with what we do now rather than this foundational knowledge idea? Oh, this is all in the book. <laughs> read the book. You have read the book. So why is it called these things? So if you look at, I have it here, my dictionary of etymology. So this is one of the things I, I went into was the etymology of words. So why is it grammar? Why is it this? Why is it that? And where it goes from there as well is important. In different languages, of course, it means different things as well. So I think there's an example in the French 
I think it's Moliere. I'm not sure. I can't remember now. It's in the book. But one of his characters was grandmère. Grandma became grandmother. And she would tell you stories from her past and tell you this was the way to live and things like that. So, so grandma has a sort of matriarchal, patriarchal feel about it. You know, it, it's set, setting things in stone all the way and, and passing knowledge on. And that becomes an essential part of it. So grammar isn't just knowledge, it's what knowledge. It's valued, valuable, foundational knowledge that sets things up for this is the way of being. This is a truthful way. This is this is the structure that should be there. It's a way of seeing the world, if you like. So it's it's not just any old knowledge, but it can include any old knowledge. <laughs> but this is the way that this is structured. So the grammar of a nation, for instance, could be different nation per nation. <laughs> the grammar of, so it's a cultural sense of it as well. So this this is something that this came really interesting to me about language itself. So the idea of the Institute Francaise, the idea of the French language is is sort of top down. It becomes a French word because the Institute Francaise says it's a word, whereas the English language comes from below. There's no official English language institute that tells you what's right and wrong it's all through practice and 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 happening and things like the oxford english dictionary and collins and all all the others they pull this stuff out from the ether and say well this is what is now a word <laughs> it's come to us from below you know so there's these different ways of seeing it so grammar is this sort of battle between top down and bottom up and it's it's always a big argument place as well so grammar is not fixed necessarily <laughs> yeah i mean I, I imagine a lot of teachers say oh you know i'm already teaching my kids knowledge what's the difference between what you think may be happening in a lot of classrooms in terms of teaching knowledge and the the grammar that's in your head yeah so i i'm tr trying to get across there that the choices you make are important it's what you teach is important the grammar the structure of the thing you're teaching is important. It's not just any old knowledge, it's what knowledge, why that knowledge. It's the important foundational knowledge of something substantial. <laughs> so if I'm teaching drama, what's the substantial, important foundational knowledge a kid needs to understand drama? What are the texts they need to know? What are the philosophies they need to know? What are the structures? they? And one thing would be the theatre. They need to know about the theatre. Well, straight away, what, what theatres? Do they need to know about Greek theatre? Do they need to know about the shape of a Greek theatre compared to a Shakespearean theatre compared to the theatre they go and watch The Lion King? And then, right, okay, well, The Lion King is an American musical. Do they need to know that? Do they need to know about American musicals, right? So straight away, I'm starting to say, well, oh God, what's the foundational knowledge of my subject? So it's not, I teach knowledge. I'm asking you here with grammar, or the trivium's asking, what knowledge is important? And how does the teacher work out what's what's important? I mean, you've, you've, you've talked about it a little bit there, but can you give us some more, more hints? So 
again on its own. If you imagine going back to the medieval times, there's this lovely frieze on the front of Chartres Cathedral, and they have grammar, and she's towering, she's sitting on a dais, you know, towering over the children. And in one hand, she has a book, and each kid has a book in their hand. And you know that this book is probably a Latin primer or the Bible. That's probably it. And so when you've only got one book or two books, it's bloody easy to answer this question. (laughs) It's what's in the textbook, stupid. Okay, (laughs) it's what's there. It's the Bible. That's what you need to know. And right, so she's towering over them with this one book. They've got the book. And in her other hand, she has a weapon, a weapon of mass instruction. So when they get it wrong, she hits them with it. You see, and this is all it. This is what I'm talking about. (laughs) This is good education, right? (laughs) One book. know what's in there, you get it wrong, I hit you. (laughs) And that's it. So basically, in those days, it was so much easier. Now we have too many bloody books. And so it's a bit more difficult. And the choices you make are really important. And to me, it has to come bottom up from the teachers working together and making up their own minds about these things, but having discussions and revisiting these discussions. And does this connect to this? And does this build up this? Because then it becomes about the order of things, the connect, how you connect it together, what comes first, what comes second, what comes third, and how all those things might follow on. So grammar is is vital. I'm just thinking back to our discussion before about exams and things like that and the way in which exams basically at the high years in many ways define the grammar and constrain teachers in that way what do you think teachers have freedom at that level what can teachers do if they feel like the grammar that's been defined at the in the examinations is not the grammar that's the true grammar well can they find another exam board would be one one way of doing it if they can't then you've got quite a few years before then to teach and to me, it's it's all about the relationship between breadth and depth. And often, I think, earlier, there's too much one damn thing after another and not enough thinking about how it all links together. And, and grammar is about how things link together and thinking about how do I teach genre? How do I teach style? How do I teach form? How do I teach all those things that give a basis for later going into more depth t-shaped if you like that's been that's talked about so what's the relationship between the breadth and the depth and how do you preload the information that gives a rich background to the knowledge that's then needed later on so i mean it's the same in all subjects i would have thought but grammar that is foundational knowledge what keeps this structure up that's going to stop collapsing when they get to the point of the exam, that they really don't actually know so many things that they can't really focus in on what the meaning is behind what they're answering. They might be able to do it technically because you've spoon-fed them, but they've got absolutely no understanding of how it all fits together. So so grammar is, is also about fitting things together or helping fit things together because you've also got to do the work. Something you did in the book that I really liked was you you related these three concepts, grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric, to some historical figures to kind of help add a bit of colour or 
kind of personify the ideas. W- w- was there a figure or a couple of figures you'd like to tell listeners relate particularly to grandma? Well, the grandmother I've already talked about and this teacher on the dais with a weapon in one hand <laughs> and the other one. There's another literary character that's always talked about as being a bad thing, was meant as a bad teacher by Dickens, Gradgrind. So Gradgrind, I think it's in Hard Times, I think he's the personification of facts. That's all a boy needs. Facts, that'll do you in life. That's all you need in life. Facts, I say. Well, yeah, that's a pretty important part of it, is facts. And so I, he's a little hero of mine, Gradgrind, even though he's a bad teacher and an awful person, and I wouldn't want that to be the education that every, anyone received. But I was educated at the time when Gradgrind was so badly thought of Perhaps it wasn't worth teaching any grammar of any sort to anyone. (laughs) And that didn't do me much good, I can promise you. And it's still a theme in in many schools around the world. Maybe. I couldn't possibly comment. Dialectic. What what is dialectic? Okay, so I was going to talk about how it relates to grammar, but perhaps that should come later. Dialectic, logic, as I said. Logos, which I can come to perhaps, which is I'm not going to really help anyone get a grasp and understanding of it because I think it just emerges. <laughs> but it's it's in it's in the Bible and all sorts of things, that word. So we can come to that perhaps. It's practice, it's experiment, it's argument, it's debating, it's contradicting, conflicting, it's the root of dialogue and dialogos, dialogic. All those things come together and it's basically where you want to get talking about things and i mean talking but it's also structuring talk in such a way that you start to perhaps challenge and look at challenges to the knowledge you've been learning that's foundational and this is where the two things come together really interestingly because they work against each other as well as with each other. Tell us more about that. All right. <laughs> Let's. I mean, if I if I teach you something, and whether it's well, even if we talk about science, let's talk about the science of COVID. Now, if there was just science of COVID, and in this country they've been saying we're following the science. Well, as soon as you say something like that, and you look at all the scientists out there. They're all saying slightly different things, perhaps. And some of them are saying radically different things based on the same data <laughs> or choosing different data to look at or reading different things from statistics, all this sort of stuff. So this is your dialectic. So instead of having, we're following the science, this one scientist is dragged out and he's the right one. We're saying, no, hold on. <laughs> Let's get a bit more sort of in the round about this. There are other opinions about this. There are other ways of seeing it. Now, let's have a look at that data, what you do with it. Think of an inductive way of doing things rather than, you know, just sort of deductive as well. And so opening things up, opening things up. And Zeno called it as well, approaching the world, I think, with a fist. <laughs> You're smacking out there. So it's it's combative as well, but it's also about seeing more than one perspective on things. But it's learning how to do that. It's learning how to think around and look around and not just accept the first thing you're told or just react to the first thing you're told, but to take a step back to think about things, to start to think. So, we, you know, here's some stuff, is grammar. What do we think about this stuff? 
well, let's get some other grammar that contradicts that stuff. And this is where dialectic comes in. And it's a logical process, of course, but it's also an argumentative process. It's also a creative process, a thoughtful process. It's great. And I, I particularly loved in the book how you talked about the ways in which grammar and dialectic kind of act as checks on each other and facilitate each other and, and balance each other in I mean, I'll try to summarize my understanding of what you were saying, and maybe you can add to it. But you can't you can't make a you know a good argument without backing it up with some with some grammar, with some ideas, and then also to present grammar without enabling dialectic or some challenging of it leads to really constrained and restricted ideas and ideology, I guess you could say. Yeah, but this this is important, and particularly if you're talking culturally. If there is just one book and that is all the truth there is, then you wouldn't need dialectic. But it ain't. It ain't like that. We don't know so much. And what you're trying to do is is free the child into thinking for themselves. And this process is how the teacher nurtures that by saying, right, well, we've looked at that. What about this? And it sort of opens out that process. But it's also the basis of a good education. I mean, this is the basis of a sort of classical education that formed the basis of the great medieval universities of Western Europe, for example. So Oxford being the obvious one in was the first one. And they teach today in this same way. A part of what they do is teach grammar. Right, I'll come to that in a second, actually. Part of what I expect you to do is find out stuff, to know stuff. But then you go to a, a tutorial and they'll talk it through with you and challenge you on something you've said or something you've written. And then they'll ask you to go away and come back with something new. And then you'd come back and in, in the old days, you'd do a viva voce, you'd, you'd talk it through. Now you write the essay and it comes back and is challenged again. And that's the essay, the viva voce is the rhetoric, the discussion about it is the dialectic, the stuff that's in it is the grammar that you find out in the Bodleian Library or wherever you're going or Google now, you know, whatever you're doing, all these different ways of finding it. So that, that's the structure of the classical education system, if you like, is these three things. And it's not just Western as well. And I can come to that, but I won't now, but I, I, I can talk about how it's Eastern and all sorts of things. You said at Oxford they, they teach you, you grammar and then you, you stop yourself and you said, well, actually, it's not quite like that and I'll come to that. So what were you alluding to there? They got fed up with teaching the grammar. They got fed up with it because it is boring to teach kids the book and to hit them every now and then. <laughs> it gets a bit boring, even for the child. So they set up special schools to teach grammar. And what do they call them? Grammar schools. And that's where the term grammar schools comes from. So the grammar schools, again, of the English grammar schools go back to medieval times, some of them, you know, and then this word grammar schools is stuck in our sort of psyche in in England. So does that mean that traditionally people would come to university and they would learn the stuff that now is you'd expect them to learn at school or you'd learn, you'd expect to learn in a classical education and then they learn to question it at university and then they kind of outsource the grammar or tell us more. Bearing in mind that you'd probably start university at sort of 12 or something like that, a bit different. And you'd be learning, you'd probably going to become a work in law or the priesthood. That would be kind of it, I suppose. So you'd be 
probably not always well to do. But then the needs for, I mean, this is the other thing, the history of education comes into this. So, so you need to look into the whole history of education to understand how these things moved because they did move in, in a long, long way. And these three types of teacher, the, the grammarian teacher we've already talked about, the dialectician and the rhetorician who would be teaching you different things, you know, and, and would be the mainstay would then joined by humanities teachers, you know, so historians would come into it and mathematicians would come into it as well. And then lots of others. <laughs> so, and the, the studia humanatis, I think it's called, became the big thing. So, so more subjects were added as time went by to the, the trivium as well. But that, that, that's all, all part of the richness of this sort of thing. So, but in the early days, everything was quite limited more limited than it is now <laughs> in numbers of things. One of the concepts that I liked in the book was the idea of balancing vertical and horizontal transmission and the relationship of that to grammar and dialectic. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the vertical transmission of grammar, if you like, this is what you need to know, and then come at it from the sideways thing, and this is this is how you challenge it, if you like, or this is the way it's being challenged, or allowing you to work out how to challenge it yourselves as well. So you're trying to bring the child along. This is, so I took up again in the book, the, the idea of, I think it's Doug Lemoff's way of expressing I, we, you as well. So there's the I of the teacher is very grammarian. The we bringing us together here is very dialectical. And the you, go off and write the essay, <laughs> is the rhetoric. So we give them the tools to go away and, and think for themselves. That, that's the freeing process that repeats throughout the, the trivium, if you like. You want to free them to do their own thing. If you remember, freedom was that central tenet to the point of doing all this. So the we, the coming together, the horizontal thing, the dialectic, you're trying to bring the child into that space. So it's not input-output. This is going in your head. I've lodged it in there now. I want to know that you know it. That's the sort of grammarian point. Dialectic is coming in in a more sort of sneaky way. It's more Socratic. It's Socrates rather than grad grind. You know, it's niggling away and asking nasty little questions and things like that as well. I also loved how you linked it to the role of parents and societies to, you know, the grammar is passing on tradition cultural tradition, maybe family tradition, and then the role of the youth to challenge that, you know, a reasonable amount. I think this is, this is again, what's the reasonable amount? Well, at times of revolution, you know, it's different than other times. So this comes down to, I think, a moment in, in the book, talk about the French Revolution and looking at Burke and Payne and how they both looked at the French Revolution. And you had Edmund Burke, who came to see it as a, as a terrible thing. They they were both friends, yeah? And they, they both hung around together and, and loved the American Revolution, yeah? Giving one to the English, you know, and, and all that. But the French Revolution, they fell apart on. They, they, they broke up their friendship over this. Payne looked at it as a, a glorious, what bliss it is to be at this in this dawn to be alive. He, he agreed with that sentiment, really, that here was a new thing. And even... and. Thomas Paine, in his books that he wrote, he said, you shouldn't quote from other books. 
you shouldn't quote. You should totally make it up anew. You shouldn't have any influence from before. Whereas Edmund Burke is the opposite, which is that's all you have. <laughs> and this tradition, if you like, and any changes you make must happen with what was it, glacial slowness, or something like that. So it must be really slow change. And th these two people, these two figures, become a sort of metaphor for the relationship between grammar and dialectic as well. So the importance of both of those things and hanging the radical and the conservative next to each other in the classroom, if you like, and trying to play with those two things became quite important. I think. And so the grammar is the tradition, but you've got to allow space for the, the radical challenge to that tradition. And you hold it in balance. That's the skill. The kid is free to make up their mind when they know both. And there could be a plethora of both, not just two things, you know, it could be many things. But when they know both things, then those constraints are then lifted, if you like, because they can then see different ways of making meaning and, and then become free to, to make their own way to become a conservative or a radical, for example, not to follow their teacher, to be free of their teacher. Mm, that's beautiful. And I, I love what you said there. When, when the student knows both, then they can choose. And I think it points to a lot of the issues we're having in society around the world at the moment. I think, you know, we're getting this polarization to the point that people don't know both, they only know one. And when you only know one, it seems absurd that anyone would be taking any other position and then fractures grow. Exactly this. And it's a sign of perhaps, it's not just this, but an education system that is either narrow or has an idea that it knows everything. You know, this is the truth of it, bang. And, and not able to show that most of it isn't known or, and, and things that are known are tentatively known. Science used to be very good at this, of saying, look, this is what we know at the moment, but in, in five weeks' time, I might not know this anymore, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. And, and that sort of doubt and uncertainty at the same time of giving structure and saying certain things are important. These are, And this is mythos if you like that the myths we live by the importance of those and and giving giving credence to things which aren't true but allow us to see truth if you like that's that's another thing altogether our narratives matter but they are narratives our cultural world our life world matters but it could have been different religions matter but they are religions yeah and <laughs> And, and, and they're very metaphorical, but they, they might be telling us truths which we are not aware of. That I mean, music is another one. You, you can listen to a piece of music and weep uncontrollably, and, and next time you listen to it, you can feel warmed by it, and all these things. It's a form of knowing, but you don't know that in, in the sort of way <laughs> that you could explain to someone now. You, you would reach for words which wouldn't necessarily explain that. But those words and that music and everything is a way of trying to get to something that we don't quite grasp. And that's part of what education does, is to open out the world of which we can't quite grasp, if you like. And, and, and that's the relationship between grammar and dialectic. It's grammar to say, yeah, this is the way it is, and dialectic to come across and say, ha ha, or is it? Just when you thought you knew everything, the dialectic comes in and says, 
no, 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 you don't. <laughs> and to come back to that point you made before that I really love, when, when students know both, they have the freedom to choose. I see it very much in, in the way teachers can approach education as well. You see some teachers who are hungry to really understand different approaches that might be like, oh, I want to learn how to facilitate Socratic questioning this week. And in, you know, a year later, it's like, I really want to master explicit direct instruction. And when they do go deeply into both, then they really understand the, the functions of both, the mechanisms, the costs and benefits, and they are free to choose. Whereas some others may become really attached to one approach and, you know, fight for that approach, but really don't understand what they're missing, I guess. Yeah. And, and those two, if, if you're going to just look at the structure of a classical education, those two things work hand in hand and they contradict each other. And balance each other. And balance each other and destroy each other. And, and all those things that, and, and uh, this sort of negative capability as Keats saw it, the, the, these sort of strange subjective things that, that hold together in this. Str- and you needn't worry that they contradict each other. That's the thing. <laughs> That's not to worry about it. That's just the way that we are, but human, you know, that we don't know everything, but we're trying to find truth. We're trying to find beauty. We're trying to find reason. We're trying to find wisdom and we're going to fail by the way, but that sort of direction is probably a nice thing to have. So to keep us going in that kind of direction is to hold these things in some sort of abeyance with each other. So they, they hold each other and they, they sort of look at each other cross across the river, you know, <laughs> distanced, but, but both need each other. So if I was doing direct instruction and depending on the subject, you, you might need more of it than other subjects, but direct instruction. And then, uh, then I bung in some questioning that takes apart the direct instruction. <laughs> Just, ah, but what about this? Or even more interesting is direct instruction on this, then direct instruction on that, which are two different ways of seeing the same thing, which contradicts each other. So you've got two different grammars to look at and dialectic then tests those two out against each other and a way of looking at things. And this is a scientific way of working as well. What's rhetoric? <laughs> I've forgotten that. Rhetoric is, is the art of communication, uh, persuasion. It's speech making obviously most obviously it's the speech the art of rhetoric is is how you make a speech but to me it expands into how you communicate something within a structured way about something so rhetoric again has its own grammar it involves its own dialectic and is the freedom of expression for the child themselves to make that essay make that speech, make that pot, play on the football pitch, do a play, perform in the orchestra, all those things when they are as free as they can be within the constraints of the rhetoric. (laughs) And again, those constraints are really important to free you because you can also break the form as well. Don't forget, there's also that chance there. Dear listeners, if you're enjoying this episode of the Eat Through Love podcast, if you've been enjoying the podcast for a while, and if you'd like to give the Eat Through Love podcast a fourth anniversary present to help keep it sustainable into the future, I would love for you to consider becoming a supporter through Patreon. 
Each month, ERRR patrons receive a summary of my key takeaways from the episode, making it easy to reflect back on key insights, quotes, and ideas from that episode. New this month and into the future, ERRR patrons will also receive access to an interactive transcript for each episode that will allow you to search for key phrases that you heard, find the portions within the podcast that you're looking for, and then jump straight to that section and listen back should you want to revisit a key idea or reference something verbatim. If you would like to support the ERRR podcast for as little as $1 per month or the average donation of $5 US per month, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash ERRR or follow the link in the show notes at ollilovell.com. This month's write-up for patrons includes a concise summary of what is meant by the trivium, grammar, dialectic and rhetoric, as well as some of Martin's thoughts on a diversity of topics from creativity to curriculum, authenticity to cultural capital. So if you'd like to receive those valuable resources, as well as generally support the ERRR podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Martin Robinson. Does the idea of rhetoric mean that students should be presenting ideas in, in every subject, in every classroom? Do you, do you see it as kind of the, an, an end point or how does it balance, balance the other two? Yeah, it's, it's a balance. It's, it's, I call it a three-legged stool and you need each leg for it to work. Now, how much you need to do and how often you need to do it is variable and it's variable at different times and in different intensities, if you like, in different models, ways of doing. It might be an essay, for example. It might be a speech. It might be a holding up a bit of sugar paper and explaining what's on it. It might be an exam. It might be a mock exam. So, you know, it, it might be a pot. I mean, it can be lots of things. So go back over. So grammar, knowing stuff. Dialectic, thinking about that stuff. And then reaching conclusions and communicating your thoughts on it is rhetoric. And then it goes round and round and round and round. But it also becomes a culmination as well. So in, in school in, in England, let's say your exams are your ultimate rhetorical point. <laughs> you're going to have to do exams in this subject and you're going to have to write about this subject in a certain way or perform in this or whatever it is, whatever the subject is. And we're going to teach you how to do that well. So we are going to teach you how to answer exam questions without a doubt. That's part of the job of the rhetoric is to teach you how to communicate well in this discipline in an educative setting to persuade the examiner that you know what you're talking about. That makes sense. That's great. Let's turn the practical switch on and really delve into what this can look like for things like the curriculum, instruction and assessment. I'd love to to go a bit deeper. So the idea of the trivium, how do you, and you know, you know, maybe you can bring in some of your experience as a consultant here, but how do you think schools can try to reflect the trivium in their curricula? Right. I think it depends. I always say where, where to start. And then the same as my writing style, I think you start in the middle and just sort of work in lots of different directions from there. But you need to ask yourselves, questions what do we need to teach what do we need to kids to think about and what do we need them to communicate and how and when and those three questions kind of those three areas kind of get you into the middle of it 
So, for example, if you need them to be able to write an essay, how do you build up to that point? You think of the grammar needed to write an essay. Yet in many schools, you come along and kids are told to write an essay. They're not told how to write an essay, or if they are, it's one lesson. Whereas to me, the grammar of writing an essay should take three years, four years, building up to that point, perhaps, you know. And then the content of what that essay is going to be about has to build up as well, because they have to have a huge amount of knowledge in order to make that essay about something as well. So they so they need to know how to argue before they can write an essay. They need to know how to debate. They need to know how to weigh things up and think about things before. So straight away, we're right in the middle. And now already <laughs> we're going, oh my God, <laughs> we've got to do all these things. Yeah. And this is three minutes in. <laughs> so what, what I sort of impishly go in, if you like, is is talking through and, and working out curriculum and and working with the school not telling them this is off the peg here's how you do it but working with them and sort of working from where they are and their own traditions and their own ways of doing things and their own things they teach and then challenge it a bit and and say well what about this what about that and right how do we get them to hear well these are some of the things that I would do. This is what the trivium kind of guides us towards. How does that work in 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 what you're doing? But basically, the trivium is the, it's so simple on one level. It's the structure of every subject. It's the structure of nearly every lesson as well, to some extent. But you need to know stuff. You need to think about stuff. You need to communicate stuff. So at that level, it's so simple. You just say, well, that's it, isn't it? You need to know stuff in your subject. Yes. You need to get kids to think about it. Yes. Right. And you need them to express. Yeah. Right. So because it's so damn simple, why does it suddenly open these things? Well, straight away, you're telling me what you're going to include in your curriculum. Right. Well, if you include Burke, should you put in pain? You know. What's your balance? What what things should be there? When, to what degree do we put in this challenge to this? And certain things have sort of mutual views on it. So something like the English Civil War, for example, would have, well, the Cromwellian view, the Royalist view, but also the Irish view, <laughs> perhaps. And and then you can start to see how these things open up for you. So it's it's very conversational and and very much about it's a way of working a way of seeing but what it does give is a way where different subjects can talk to each other and to people in perhaps management as well and and be able to start talking about their subjects in a way that works with the subject it goes along the grain of the subject but allows a deeper way of talking about these things rather than chasing data or levels or or whatever used to be there. That's an interesting point. So these threads of grammar, dialectic and rhetoric, you're saying provide a bit of a common language for teachers to say, what does the rhetoric in your subject look like? Could mine reflect more of that or less of that? Is that what you mean? Yeah, it could be, or it doesn't have to reflect it. It just says, right, how do you come? So as soon as you know that the rhetoric is an important thing, right, how do we build up the rhetoric in your subject? How do you build that up, the way it's communicated? What are the structures and what orders does it go in? If you start thinking about that rather than 
for instance, exams can obsess a school right from day one. So that all they teach is how to do the rhetoric <laughs> from day one and, and throw in some grammar into it. And so they got one thing they teach, no dialectic, no thinking at all. And, and we're going, right, we teach this stuff and now we just want them to be able to express it pretty much and miss out any of the dialectic point at all. So that could be something that you would uncover it through discussion and saying, well, hang on a minute. Are those kids free to, to do their own thing? No, because they don't understand the subject. They only understand the exam and, and that comes through. So are they in control of the rhetoric? You want to let go. You want them to be independent of the teacher so that the rhetoric becomes theirs, not regurgitating what the teacher has taught them ad infinitum. And they need to go through the dialectic for that to happen. You can't go from great, straight from the grammar to that. Yeah, and that partly is practice, but it's practice and then looking at different perspectives as well and practicing those. There are different ways of doing these things. Now, again, for some subjects, these are different balances to make. And some subjects might be more about logic than debate, but they are asking questions logically. Is that so like this bit of this maths equation? Is it right? A poem you might ask, is it beautiful? History you might ask, is it true? In maths, you might ask, is it right? But all these things are similar. You know, when you put a picture on the wall above a, a fireplace or something like that, you get your partner to stand a bit back and he or she sort of looks at it and you say, is it right yet? You know, it's just about getting it right. <laughs> But it's not maths, it's just, get, or is it maths? Well, you could say it is, you want it symmetrical. No, I like my thing slightly off center. Do you want to put it over there? We want it to the left a bit, but it then balances the pot <laughs> on the mantelpiece. So these are, I, you could go off on these things. But so there's different ways of doing it. So the dialectic has, has lots of aspects to it. And it, if you look into the history of it, this is why it becomes such a fascinating thing including famously how many angels can you get dancing on the end of a pin that's part of dialectic in education that that came directly from medieval scholars sort of working themselves up into completely nonsensical places that's dialectic for you <laughs> the dialecticians they're a fascinating bunch they annoyed everyone but is, is it right is it right is it true is it is it you know is it beautiful and and they're, they're big questions and is beauty what we're looking for? Is it challenging? Or what do we look in art? You know, should it be beautiful? What is beauty? All these things. That's the dialecticians playing around with it. What is truth? What is right? Well, a mathematician can come along and pretty much tell you, can they? Lots of things. Yeah. Where does it come from? Where do they find? Where is maths from? You know, where do I know that's right and that isn't right? How do I know that? How do I prove that? Well, that's dialectic coming into it. Where's the proof? Where's the logic that shows that's right? So still on the topic of curriculum, in the book you talked about the idea of the authentic curriculum. What did you mean by that? Right. This comes down to a long sort of train of thought in the book, which goes from Logos. And the idea of... I suppose authenticity becomes, becomes a problematic term because how do we know what, what is authentic and what isn't authentic? What's, when, when does learning become authentic? But, but the idea from Logos is 
about truth and about a coming together of things where all things make sense. And to me, the authentic part of the curriculum, if you like, is where all things come together, all things make sense. And Logos is the word in the Bible, if you like, in the beginning was the word. And the Greek word for word is Logos. And Logos is um, becomes the Christ figure. And, and this is where it get, the, the trivium gets very sort of esoteric. But it, Heraclitus always also talked about this in, in the sort of Greek tradition, about Logos being where all things come together, where all things suddenly make sense. So the authentic curriculum is where things make sense, where things can become part of the human expression of knowledge, of knowing. It's something I talk about in Athena versus the machine as well, which is the, the authentic, it can be talked about as understanding. You're in the midst of it. And the German word for understanding is being in the midst of something, in the middle of something. So that's kind of what I mean. You're, you're in it. You're in it. It's not something abstract. It's something you're in. And that's authentic curriculum. And I throw in a number, it should be 40%. Well, that's bullshit. It doesn't matter whether it's 10%, 2% or whatever. It's a part of what you're doing is part of what your way of understanding things. So if you're doing theatre, it's doing a play. That's a way of understanding it that you can't express abstractly. Doing maths, doing it, practising it that's authentic. You're doing it. <laughs> You're not just learning about it. You're actually in the middle of it, doing it and applying it, perhaps in different situations as well. Perhaps that, that could be part of it. So you're, you've learned on the, in, all about football. You've done lots of training that week and now you're in the school team <laughs> and you're playing. You're in the midst of it. You're doing it. You're understanding it at a different level. This is an authentic understanding of it that's beyond the words of it. I kind of, to the, in, that, in that description, it sounded like you were talking about application. The three examples you gave there were about applying it in a real-life context, maybe. Are there some limitations in that definition? It's the pursuit and the engagement with it. I think I could talk in the book. So you name it, the authenticity is in the pursuit and in the engagement for its own sake as well so it's applying knowledge yeah but i don't know in, in a game of football are you applying knowledge or i don't know if it quite works like that you you are but it doesn't feel like oh i'm applying the knowledge <laughs> i think it's closer to what shikmentihali mikhail shikmentihali i try and say his name properly that's how that's how it's pronounced talked about flow so the idea of flow is an expression of it, I suppose, that you you are in the midst of it. You're not outside thinking about how to apply it. You are it. You are doing it. So it's it's beyond the, the actual thing there. So there's breadth of experience as well, trying to make sure these each child has a, a breadth of many things to be able to experience this as well. Go on. No, it's really it's really it's really interesting because it's like, how do you like for me, you know, I'm I, I'm learning I'm learning German at the moment, and 
it's authentic when I do my Saturday or Sunday night language exchange. You know, I jump on Zoom and I catch up with Melanie who lives in Stuttgart and we speak German and half the time and English and half the time and I'm in it and some some days, you know, I'm in flow and I feel like I'm communicating well, some days I'm not. But it's like it's it's hard, isn't it, to to get kids to do maths in a way that they experience flow and that it's authentic or to play a game of soccer in a way that they get into flow and they're not, you know, worried about what the people on the sidelines are thinking about them or whatever. It's just, it's. Yeah. Without getting carried away because it can go wrong. It's not about perfection. It's it's about failure as well. It's it's about not quite it all coming together <laughs> as well. It's part of the the trial to hope that it will come together, even though it won't always come together, but it's given the opportunities for those things to happen. So it's it's to have the opportunity and and to fail miserably at that opportunity is is part of it, because then you know what it's like not to be quite there. So so this thing about it all coming together is is important, and and that might be very rare, and it might not be possible until you've got a hell of a lot of grammar and dialectic going on there to get to that point, and it it it's it's you know it's something that it was great to have the opportunity. And if the school doesn't give that opportunity, then I think that would be a shame. That's great. So I guess maybe it's starting from a point where you say, what would it look like for this to really come together for our students? And what opportunities do we have to give them to succeed or fail in pursuing that? Yeah, And, and to allow those spaces to open up and and for the child to realise they're in there. And obviously in PE, in drama, in music, perhaps these are more obvious places. <laughs> but I think it's there in all subjects. And that authentic curriculum, that could, I'm seeing is it overlapping primarily with probably the rhetorical space, but also maybe it could happen in the dialectic space. Debating, practising, making a souffle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> trial and error. Trial and error is part of it. It's finding this this thing about you being. I can get it. In, again, this is taken up more in in Athena versus the machine. This is sort of Heidegger sort of place to be. Which is, which uh, as soon as I mention Heidegger, people get frightened and run away. Which is as as it should be. By the way, <laughs> when you talk about Heidegger, you should get frightened and run away. But this sort of trying to say about being there. You you are there. It is there around you we are we are in this space and and there are certain things that can only be understood by not quite understanding it if you like in a way that can be reasoned and discussed but actually just felt just you intuit that it's right like like you do when you put the picture on the wall what's right or when you listen to that piece of music and you choose it for your your dearly departed's funeral or something like that. Oh, that's right for her. Something else in the book that came out quite strongly, especially around this curriculum area, was about exposing students to new environments, new opportunities and things like that. And you told the story of the work that Dr. Irene Bishop has done in her school in providing students with opportunities. Can you tell us a bit about that and then tie that into this idea of the trivium and the authentic curriculum. Yeah, so she was working. She's now she's retired now. Working in a girls' school in 
the London borough of Southwark. So inner London, state school, lots of gang-related problems and, and lots lots of other things that you perhaps, as soon as you say girls' school, you go, oh, well, you know. But huge, hugely deprived area and kids with lots of difficult backgrounds and, and also kids who come from a wide variety of nationalities and, and races and in, in you know, multi, multicultural London as, as, as it goes. And because she's in central London, taking advantage of that and going out there to all the institutions around there and saying, what can you do for us, basically? <laughs> you know, what, what have you got for us? So she's got the Globe Theatre, Southwark Cathedral, all these sort of institutions nearby, the, the National Theatre and, and, and various other institutions, which art galleries, all this. So, so this cultural richness and to say it's good for you. This is it. It's right. It's good. It's beautiful. It's true. Or whatever these, this way of saying, it's important for my kids here to have those experiences, to take advantage of those things that are there and, and to build up things which don't necessarily help them get exams. Though I would argue perhaps it does because it builds up a whole, I'll use the word again, ecosystem around the idea of knowledge and, and learning and, and wanting to be part, a part of a vibrant, disparate city, if you like, with lots of different things going on and you can be the place where these things come together. So, so she was very much into explaining the, the, the building, the whole child, the, the importance of all these experiences for educating the whole child, if you like, and, and every giving them what I think she expressed about the middle class dinner table or whatever, <laughs> you know, they, they will sit down at dinner. I, I don't think this happens now, but let's let's pretend it does. The middle class dinner, they all sit around the table discussing high philosophy and classical music and religion and, and theatre and, and the latest exhibition at the Royal Academy or whatever. Well, she wants her kids to be able to have that experience as well. And it's something you even get with Catherine Burble Singh from a, a different way of seeing the world of education, perhaps. And I know this as a fact between those two, because there, there was some interesting conflict with dialectic, shall we say, between those two early on. But even Catherine would talk about the same sorts of things there. And other people talk about it being cultural capital and all that. And I have my views on cultural capital, which, which have moved over time. Uh, but I, I certainly think that the, the education as a whole is, 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 a, is a mindset here, is to say the grammar, you can't have too much of it, you know. <laughs> you can't have too much of it, the too, too much to be interested in. There's not too much. The more, the merrier, if you like, without bunging it all in the brain at once. And this is where depth comes in and the old cognitive load stuff, you know. <laughs> you don't just throw it all at them at once. You've got to give them the grammar to understand what's around them. So when I when I see something and it's a pile of bricks in a tape in the tape gallery, you know, and it's called art. Well, I need to have preloading or some understanding of art and why this might be considered art and why it is challenging and why it is 
part of the argument that some people like it, some people don't. And you can come in on that conversation and argument, but you structure in such a, such a way, rather than take them along to it and say, here's a pile of bricks. Isn't it? It's art. Learn it. And the kid comes, what? No, it's not. <laughs> you haven't given them the structure to think about it before they've actually got it. Or a piece of classical music. Here's some Wagner. It's great. Better than Stormzy. That rubbish. And you haven't given them a structure to even get into that and understand why it might be good. So what we were just talking about there in terms of giving students access to the things that kids from middle class backgrounds would get, for example. I think it also, I think this idea that the middle class kids get this is, I think, I think even, even Matthew Arnold looked at them and sort of said, you've got the barbarians and the Philistines and things like this. It's not necessarily class-based. Yeah, but, oh, I'd, I'd, I'd agree, actually. And, you know, as a middle-class person myself, I'd say I I definitely didn't get a lot of this stuff and I would have loved to get more of it. But another thing that came out in your book that relates to this of giving students these wider experiences is the idea of education as something that helps students to decide who they want to become. It's not, it's not so much what, what's in your head after education. It's like, who, who are you as a person after your education, which also related to the idea of poverty that I thought about a lot more through reading your book because I've been working in a lower socioeconomic school for the last five years and your book helped me to see I guess poverty in a different way instead of just a poverty of material kind of things it's really a poverty of poverty of experience in a lot of ways a lot of the students that I teach have never probably been to a play or you know many of these other things that we've just talked about and it's it's like, how can they envision the kind of people that they could become if they wanted to, if they have had no exposure to these kind of things? And then that leads into ideas about motivation and, and, and also the idea you talked about before, when they know both and they can choose. And, you know, if all they know is school and exams, then they can't be liberated from that and they feel like their whole life is about these exams. So I throw a lot of stuff out there. Do you want to pick up any of those pieces? Yeah. Let's, let's say what what's in your mind now I, I there's there's a sort of progressive idea that you try and bring out what's already there from a child you know try and I think Ken Robinson talked about someone who was a dancer she had it in her you know you just had to bring it out I don't think that's how it works <laughs> I think it's not inside you the world is out there and it's inside you it's the world and you the way you relate to it is where things are so you need you don't find out by bringing the dance out of the child you have to have the child dance for her or him to find out that they could be a dancer they have and and the dancing is a thing that is a structure and a way of seeing the world and way of being in the world that's outside that's culturally outside someone but relates to something physical and emotional within us of which some people find more emotional, more physically able to do it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the coming together of those things. So education brings things from outside to find yourself in <laughs> and to 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 envelop and to to develop you. And as as does life. And and a limited life limits the way you see the world or experience it or know it. And that isn't necessarily bad either though, because that might be the best thing but you don't know it because you haven't experienced everything else out there. 
uh, and everything else. So the, the more you know about things, the more possibilities there. If they're shallow opportunities, then you can just miss them, even though they were might have been something great for you, which is why they have to be involving in some way. So you can't have too many things. It has to be restricted in a certain way. And one of the ways we do that by calling them subjects and within subjects, we look at certain things and not everything, you know, and we open up these worlds. So again, we try to say, well, which novels are the most beautiful, the most interesting that the, are my children in front of me, my children as a parent or, or whatever, would be most likely to find something important in for them. And that has to be uplifting. It has to be challenging. It has to be something more than they would have found in their normal scouting around on Google or something like that. The motivation must be that it's quite important and difficult. That that kind of is the motivation here. There's something slightly beyond me of which if I am able, and the teacher's job is to take the kid to that point and to drag them along kicking and screaming to the point where they find an authentic relationship with, with something. Not all the time, probably not most of the time, but the possibility needs to be there. I'd like to come back to this idea of cultural capital because you mentioned before it's something you've changed your mind about over the years. Tell, tell us about that journey and where you're at at the moment. Right. Cultural capital. So in, in, in Trivium, I, I look at it in a quite positive way and make the connection with cultural capital, Bourdieu and, and all this and, and grammar and saying that here's the tradition, here's the things that you could do you good and all that. In Athena versus Machine, I sort of look at it and just get worried about the word capital and start seeing it, seeing it more as a transactional thing. Here's, I've got this culture, now I can do this. <laughs> and the, the sort of, it's about buying a way into a sort of, cult of cultured lifestyle or, you know, I, I'm a better person because of it or, or all those things. And so I've sort of balked at the idea of capital. So culture is our way of relating to the world, or it is the world we relate to and how we relate to it. Culture is a relationship. Without culture, we wouldn't understand anything about the world. <laughs> There's, there'd be no structures, there'd be no narratives to, by which we could explain the world. So there's the natural world, and then there's the, the human world, and that's culture. And our understanding of nature is also through the culture of natural sciences, for example, <laughs> in some way, but our senses and other things as well come to it. So culture is, is, is wider. It's not just something that we have to, in order to climb up the greasy pole, get ourselves into university and become a lawyer. How does your, um, how does your changing view of cultural capital, or how has it changed your understanding or belief about what schools should be doing in relation to it? Not much in terms of the balance between the, the, these these two books. I think the the emphasis has become more about the dialectic and the importance of perspectives and, and seeing things from different angles. And really, it's, it's, it's more about that, finding that there are how to so. The, the challenge I have all the time with this is the balance between truth and relativism, that there is one truth or there's relativism. 
And when you start playing around with culture and, and thinking about culture, you, you know a lot of the world is subjective. But finding my way through various philosophers into perspectivism is kind of where I'm at now. <laughs> and, and seeing that there is truth, there is things that are right, but our way of seeing these things is very difficult to, to experience. And number one, we can't see it all at once. <laughs> we have different glimpses at it. And it's Mary Midgley, and this is something I talk about in, in Curriculum, Athena versus the Machine. It's Mary Midgley talks about it as an aquarium, a large aquarium, and you go and see this aquarium and you can't see the whole thing at once. And all you've got are these very murky windows every now and then, and you can peer through. And some of these windows are murkier than others. <laughs> So you get hardly any view, but within that, there's the truth, the real, the, the important, and our way, our, our flawed human way of seeing these, the truth. And if you like, these murky windows are our subjects, our art, and, and some of our windows are better than others. And we just should guide kids towards the better windows as much as possible. <laughs> and, and, and enough of them that they get enough on perspectives to see enough of it to be able to sort of live an informed life. And that's not just informed in terms of reason, but also emotion and, and other things. So that's not capital, is it? That's not culture as capital. That's, that's culture as, as a way of being in the world, of seeing the world, of, of trying to make sense of the world. Meaning. It's meaning. Looking for meanings. Go on. Yeah, it's okay. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where I wanted to get to with the cultural capital idea. I guess, I guess to me, it kind of relates back to what I was talking about, that poverty of experience from before. And that's experience with experiences, but also with the things that unlock newspapers, political discourse, things like that for students. It, the structure of these, these murky windows, you know, if, if, I don't know, let's think of something Australian without thinking of Vegemite. Cricket, something about cricket, perhaps. I mean, the whole history of cricket is such an interesting one. And, and to know more about cricket, both as a player and both as someone who then knows the history of it and the way it sorts of eats into a sort of cultural idea of Australianness, you know, and then, and then understands the ball tampering moment and why that led to someone crying on <laughs> television and what's cricket what isn't cricket it's not cricket you know and all that and and then the ashes and then the the idea of burning those ashes and and why that becomes important and this small little urn and why you know and then also about how it's an english game that was meant to civilize the the empire you know civilize the natives and and that side to it, the beautiful side, the green and the whites, you know, and 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 all this sort of thing. So you 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 can look at things in in lots of different ways. But opening out the world of cricket to somebody involves so many different things. Some of which are about nation, some of which are about colonialism, some of which are about the skill of hitting a ball and chucking it around. Some of which make grown men cry on national television and, and go into, you know, shame, be, be ashamed of a tradition. So it, it's, 
I mean, it's it's how do you get involved in that world? You, you, it's quite complex. <laughs> and and why is Australian rules football played in the same stadia or the the same shape stadia as well? You know, and and all all that. <laughs> yeah, and that's a great example of an area in which you need to preload, which is the term used before. You need to preload some stuff before people can kind of get it. And I would say. Admit that cricket is not an area where I have sufficiently preloaded to get it. <laughs> but it's similar. Another example is... Were you, were you Danish heritage as well? No, no, no. No Danish heritage. What's, what's your heritage? Chinese Chinese, and, you know, the UK, I guess. Yeah. So... Wish I had Danish heritage. I spent some time in Copenhagen. I lived in Copenhagen for six months. That's what it was. That's what it was. There you go. So you've been to Denmark. <laughs> yeah, I have. <laughs> that makes you Danish. <laughs> been there once. <laughs> A day trip. <laughs> yeah, and and another example where you kind of need to preload some stuff in the sport realm, I was just thinking like is jiu-jitsu. If you watch people wrestling or something, if you have no knowledge, you just see two people like on the ground in the same position for about a minute and it's just like what is happening? There is nothing going on here. This is the most boring sport. But if you, if you actually understand, have a bit of an idea, which I have a very small idea, I'd love to learn more, but you can actually see they're trying different things out. There's, they're wrestling for a dominant position and it's like you can get it. Well, there's, there's the grammar of, of jiu-jitsu is huge but, but, and it's a tradition that's handed down and yet things have changed in that tradition over time. You know, obviously it doesn't, didn't just arrive fully formed on day one, you know. So how did we get to where we are? And and these sort of quasi-religious sort of ceremonies that, the the rituals that happen around it and, and why those become important to it. What perhaps I would see is in, in a tradition chivalrous, you know, <laughs> or all this respecting your opponent and all that become an important part of it as well so so all these things where where this is cultural this is not cultural capital you don't find these things just to sort of change your position in society these this is about how we live in the world it's more important than that and and by giving kids a range of these things they can live in the world in more than one way they're free to choose last last point on curriculum is you talked about the importance of allowing students to specialize in the book. Tell us more about this. Yeah. So in terms of, I think what we've, we're talking about here is to some extent is for them to find places where things mean things, <laughs> that this subject means something to me. So it's to open that out. So perhaps they, they are a musician, they are a mathematician, they are a scientist, they are a cook. So that they can, with the breadth that I'm talking about, which is wide, they can also find specialisms within that, which they can perhaps pursue further than the exam, further than the normal syllabus perhaps allows, that they can do extra things in it. So, you know, obvious obvious examples would be the school play, <laughs> the school orchestra, running, having an exhibition, but also perhaps things in, in science working with, with a lab or, or, or whatever it is to expand on their school life somehow in those things. So it's not just about limiting, it's about expanding. Is there an equivalent? And we talked about, we talked about problem solving before in mathematics or, or you know, doing questions. But if, 
if, for example, like a maths teacher wanted to, and I, you know, I ask this because I'm a maths teacher myself, and I've been I've been reading your book and enjoying it and thinking, I'd love to bring some of these components more into my own instruction, but still trying to make sense of what it would look like. I mean, I get the grammar. I'm starting to understand the rhetoric more because also you you framed it around you know, performance in or communication within an exam, for example. But, you know, there's other ways that we can foster communication of mathematics as well. But are there, are there any changes that you've supported schools to make around this or that you've supported math teachers to make around this to better reflect the trivium? Yeah, so, um, well, again, I think one of the first schools I ever worked with, my first department, they threw me into was a very dysfunctional maths department and what transpired from that was for the first time for a long time they were actually talking about maths <laughs> rather than admin and the focus on the structure of maths the order of things the connectivity of things so i'm going to give you a really basic example was something we one of the first things we said, and this is, this is right near the beginning, so it's, it's not, it's, it's almost trivial. <laughs> but then working out percentages, and they're having problems teaching percentages because the kids didn't understand it and never understood it. They're always sort of challenged by it. And then trying to say, well, what should come before you teach that? And what should come before that? And what should come before that? Now, this is basic sequencing is, is now sort of, De rigueur, I suppose, in, in curriculum thinking, isn't it? Sequencing is, is is an important part of it. But thinking it through, starting in the middle, so we're starting from percentages and working our way out, right, where do we go back to? So we said, right, well, percentages, before you need that, decimal fractions perhaps, right? Okay, decimal fractions, then fractions, then normal, you know, sort of more normal fractions before decimal fractions, and then cake, right? <laughs> so you have a cake, cut it in half, 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 0.5, 0.5, 50%, So that structure of going back and seeing it the way through. So when you introduce percentages, it's not a new topic. It's a continuation of the old. And to explain to kids that this is how we got there. We started with the cake. Do you remember that? And then we went on to half and half. You had half the cake, you you greedy person over there. And, and all that. And then we went to decimal fractions. And that was 0.5. Remember that? Right. Well, here we are in percentage terms, that's 50%, 50%. So it's about sequencing, it's about narrative, it's about story, it's about grammar, it's about how the whole thing hangs together. And then the logic of it, and this is, this is the thing about dialectic, the logic of it, logical thinking, thinking it through, and then being able to express it yourself so you can understand that and therefore express it to other people at how the math works in the language of math and express it in that in that sense so that that's a very basic idea of grammar dialectic rhetoric dialectic being more logic in mathematical terms and a sequence that's very basic and and this is what they were doing they they were teaching percentages as a completely new topic and kids weren't understanding it and and this is like i say it's basic stuff and almost too simple because a lot of people will say, well, we do that. That's what we do. Yeah, but your kids still aren't understanding that. Why not? What's the, what's the story you're telling, the narrative here? So the curriculum narrative is very important. 
and and if you like, what are we teaching? Why are we teaching this? What order are we teaching it in? Does it preload the knowledge needed to get to there? And then we remind them by taking them back over the journey and how the logic progresses throughout this way. And then at some point, we want them to be able to express how the maths works, how these things connect together, how and when they come up to a problem at some point, how do they know what tools they need in order to solve that or or bring to bear upon this issue, this problem, this this idea. So you you try and give them that understanding, that authentic relationship to the subject, if you like. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah, thanks for that. Now, one of the but that's it, nothing new, is it? That's not that's it's. It, this is the important thing about the trivium. It's not new. <laughs> it's the oldest tradition in education. It's the way we do things, and and my idea of it is that so many things have come in the way that we've forgotten the way to do things. <laughs> all of us, and and your first thing is it would always be, oh, we all we do that. Yeah, but how many things have got in the way of these basic things? This very important, thoughtful approach that is actually the bare bones, the skeleton on which education should rest rather than all these other things that have got in the way of it because it's got a little magic all of its own. Now, one of the endpoints we often have to get to as teachers is, is putting a mark on things. And we've talked about, we were just speaking then about the importance of an essay, for example. Often a teacher has to ascribe a mark to that essay. So are there ways that when you work with schools and you support them to take, as you call it, a trivial approach, what is an, what does marking an essay look like under that approach versus what schools might do in other contexts? Yeah, well, I, I think part of this I talked about right early on is about saying that this isn't a, an exact art. It's not saying that the teacher comes in and says, right, here's the grade. That's what you've got. But it's about explaining where it's good, where it's not so good and why that might be, using the authority of the teacher at the beginning. But your aim is to transfer that authority to the child so they are able at some point over time to make their own judgments about their own work. And that takes passing on the expertise of of knowing what's good and bad, what's right and what's wrong, what's truthful, what's what's beautiful, what isn't. And some of that is intuitive, some of that is is possible to argue. And the kid at some point, you want them to get to the point and saying, well, no, I wanted to say that particularly because of this. And to be able to argue with their teacher and to, without giving a charter to the lazy and, and useless, because they they never get to that point. <laughs> They just argue from day one. You don't know what you're talking about. So shut up. Here we go. You need to know these things in order to get to the point to then be free of your teacher, to be able to challenge your teacher's views on it in an articulate, thoughtful way that is drawn on the realm of the subject in which they're working in and through their understanding of it to reach that small glimpse of expertise that they might be working towards at some point and that lovely moment where they are possibly right in their challenge but the teacher as always should be holding on to as much of the uh, authority as possible to challenge the child back 
<laughs> at that point. That might take years. I'm not, I'm not saying this should be day one. This this might take years for that that moment to arrive. So you you show there's doubt, there's uncertainty, but there's also some things are better than other things, and you try and argue that and to say, well, this is why I think this, and and you work it through. But you work it through with them, which is why visualizers are great. Which is why um, showing kids work to other kids is is great and and saying right what's good about this what's not so good about this what how could this work better etc cetera, etc cetera. and and how those those ways of seeing can can coagulate i was going to say i don't know if that's even the right word that makes sense taking students to the point and it's very in line with dylan williams formative assessment stuff in terms of getting students to the point where they can evaluate their own their own learning some other things you talk about in the book were actually having different ways of assessing students, like presentations, oral exams, things like that. This is especially the kind of oral exam idea. I don't know about the UK, but this is something that just isn't really done in Australia much at all, at least from what I've seen. And the reason why I mentioned Copenhagen at one point in, in the notes or something was because I actually had my only ever oral exam when I was in Copenhagen. And it That's was where a, I got it from. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, it was a really fascinating experience. And I thought, gee, and I have thought since then, it would be great to assess students in this way because you can really get to the depths of their understanding. Are these things that you've tried and tried to support schools to do, these different forms of assessment? Yeah. So if you go back to rhetoric being the, the be-all and end-all of, of the, the trivium, if you like, this is, this is your final expression of everything. And it goes round in circles, by the way, but it's your final expression for today, for now. <laughs> Traditionally, it was oral. So oracy is quite a central part of the whole trivium process, as is debate, of course, then, you know, so there's debate and speech. And a speech includes debate and you need something to talk about, so you need to know what you're talking about. And there's, there's your, there, that's how it all comes together. So we say, right, all these things can be looked at in different ways. What you don't do in, in a speech, in a debate, is is say, well, that's right and that's wrong in such a stark way. And this goes back to the idea of the, the tutorial. The, the tutor is there to offer advice, to challenge, to to move on, not to close down to a grade, but to open up to more possibilities, if you like. So, so it's it's when you see a piece of art the it's not to say it's not for us all to rest on our laurels and say that's the most perfect piece of art ever made we might as well all give up now <laughs> it's about saying right what could we do next you know what other things have we learned from this one moment this one thing have you helped schools or have you yourself used these kind of like a for example an oral exam approach i mean when when i was first teaching drama it was an oral exam was part of it the kids had to explain to the examiner in why they worked in a certain way and they had to they had a, a, a working document with them that they would show as well and then they'd ask answer questions about that and the examiner would ask them questions and and note down their answers and how articulate and thoughtful and insightful they were and gave a subjective grade to that and it's this thing about subjectivity and objectivity. I think schools are too hung up 
on objective grades and tracking the pupil's progress and, and all this sort of thing, rather than being slightly more subjective and letting things fluctuate a bit. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter so much. Let them find their way at points, you know. So they so part of it is to say to schools, don't target grade, track grades, all these things. Just take a relaxed approach. Trust your teacher a bit more. Trust your the working methods a bit more of allowing kids to find different ways of expressing themselves in that subject area, showing their understanding of it. So part of it would be expressing it's not all on the written word because that can be traced, but you should allow more space for talking about things and creating things, doing things, if you like, in each subject area, some more relevant than others, obviously. But you get to a point where, like I said, in drama, it would just everything had to be written down and you'd, you'd stop doing drama almost. You, you could get to a point where there's the thing itself is not being done anymore. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So, so, so the example given there was like back in the day when, when you're able to implement these oral exams. Have you, have you worked with any schools or are you aware of any schools who are like today using this approach where there is a level of, teacher subjective judgment in in an oral process are there are there anyone is there anyone yeah doing? and and there's famously schools that do more oracy than others should we say and um, one of the leading lights of of oracy curriculum is through school 21 in in england some some of which i i love their work and some of which i have disagreements with them but i went very early on their first year as a new school and new approach to see what they were doing and like I say, a lot, lot of that was based on an oral approach. The reason was is Peter Hyman, who was the founder of the school, used to be Tony Blair's speechwriter. So he's <laughs> he was very much in, into that sort of approach. Other schools I've worked with, I've worked with Eton, for goodness sake. So we spent some time building up a a small coffee club group that was with Eton and one or two of the local state schools around there and we'd meet up in I think it was coffee which was I don't know I can't remember the name of the coffee shop I shouldn't advertise anyway but it was a coffee shop in in the in the Eton area and we used to sit there and and just challenge and do the old-fashioned tutorials they'd find out stuff we'd come in and we'd just talk to it talk about it and and it's education for its own sake and building up the culture of curiosity, of interest, of of being able to discuss things with people who, from different backgrounds, different ideas, but but are able to have a space to be articulate in and to be challenged by an adult or two or three adults in this case, as well as each other, and and to build that up and and to just to go on forever if we needed to, you know, to have that space in the day. This sort of OT, the Latin word, a sort of space for reflection and thought. I mean, the reason why I ask this question is because I, I think I've mentioned previously, I've, I've wanted to do this kind of assessment. So, and I've mentioned this on the podcast in a previous episode, I think, what the assessment looked like when I was in Denmark, it was some agroforestry subject. And I, I went into the examination, I had 15 minutes, there were the three lecturers there on the other side of the table and there was something like 16 cards face down on the on the table and my job was basically to pick one of the cards turn it over talk about it for five minutes 
And so these were the 16 key ideas. Talk about for five minutes and then we would have a question for, they would question me for about five minutes, seeing how much I really knew about it. And then also I'd submitted a project prior to that, which they'd read. And then the last five minutes or so, they would question me about that. And I remember one of the questions they asked me was, oh, you did this design and you had this type of fish that you used in the design. Had you thought about, you know, it was an introduced species and you're near a waterway. Had you thought about the possibility of this introduced species going into the waterway and, you know, stuffing things up there basically. So I had to have an answer to that and which was, you know, something I couldn't have anticipated beforehand. Luckily I knew that there was another fish farm down the road that used the same fish. So I could say, well, that's, the issue's already there, but so I've, I wanted. I thought that was a great assessment approach. It really got to the heart of of what what I knew. There was an element of randomness in there in terms of what I picked up at the at the start, but also it felt very authentic because it's like the kind of thing you would have to do if you made a proposal to a company and then you took it to them and then they said, you know, justify your decisions and things like that. So I've wanted to use that idea in physics myself. We get students to do pracs and things like that, then they could come in and be questioned, but. In our examination system here, the first step is for you to internally rank the students, right? And then that ranking is taken into the exam and then there's all this weird scaling stuff, which I could explain, but is very confusing without being able to draw pictures. But basically the ranking really matters. And so anything that's like a bit woolly introduces uncertainty and then kids can kind of get up in arms and saying, why did you give them this one and not me? You just like them more. I don't know if necessarily the kids I was teaching would have said that, but it's a really legitimate question. I, w- what are your thoughts about this? This, this? this is part of the problem, of course, as soon as we make education about what's the next stage and it's so important. And if you fail at something, then your whole life picture is changed and therefore Perhaps we can now sue the teacher, sue the school, or, or certainly complain about them and, and, and all sorts of things. So it's it's becoming, because the schooling is becoming more high stakes. But also when I was diminished and left school, I would never have thought about challenging the school in any way. So it is part of the culture of the 21st century as also exams become more and more important because we, we make them too important. We, we think getting to university is the be-all and end-all, I think, and, and we've made it into a capital institution. Education has become too much a sorting hat, a sorting system, you know, about sieving kids through and all this sort of stuff. So we have made it too high stakes. So that that's part of it. But I'll, I'll talk about two things here. We need space for subjectivity and subjective judgment because that's how most decisions are made in this world anyway. <laughs> You know, most decisions we take every day are subjective decisions, you know, and it's a way that we deal with the world and you can't knock it out of education. You can't knock subjectivity out of it. And that means bias, discrimination, all those things that go along with this, with subjectivity are part of it. Now, that means I'm not saying that the discrimination about the child, but about the work and you discriminate, you say that's slightly better than that because of this. And this is based on my judgment as someone who knows this about this and thinks this, and this is why. So your expertise as a teacher, in other words, is an important part of it. And if you take that out of education, then then it's just machines, and it's all done by computer. And there's no point in having teachers making comments about anything at all. And therefore, you have to diminish the experience and breadth of education in order to fit that machine. 
So you just make it multiple choice questions or whatever and leave it at that. Now, the Oxbridge entrance exam includes an interview. And part of the interview, and I've done work on this with a group of who used to go around state schools to, to try and make the interview process at Oxford and Cambridge more open to state school pupils because it's only private school pupils who were taught this stuff. And of course, it's trivial. It's trivium based, of course. But one of those things is the probe, probing questioning. So we look at your personal statement or, or, or some of the things you've studied and we ask you a question about it. And then we listen to your answer. And from your answer, we ask a question about your answer. And then we listen to that answer and ask you a question about that. And then we ask you a question about that until you get to the point where you can't answer. And then we retreat and go to another part of what you've written about and start the same process again. Now, probe questioning is a dialectical Socratic idea or whatever. You know, it's part of the process I will use with schools and saying, right, this is something we do. How to bring in this sort of really challenging questioning. And lots of schools are very embarrassed by it and find it very difficult because they're using, I don't know, pounce and bounce and all these sorts of things about or lolly sticks and all these things. I blame Dylan William for all this. But but it's all about not embarrassing the child, not exposing them, not not challenging them too much and, and being fair and all those things. Well, this sort of probing question is about being unfair, <laughs> really focusing on one child, pushing them to the point where they don't know. And how do you get schools and teachers and pupils to the point where this can happen and be a regular part of lessons? Does take the preloading. You have to explain where you're going with it and why you're there as as suddenly devil's advocate or whatever you like to take on that role. So questioning is an important part of the work I do with schools. Debates, how to set up debates, how to set up Socratic circles, how to set up linking opinions to facts, to texts, and how to pull all these things out of the work. Yeah, so that that's an important part of what I do. And it's with resilience, without the child falling apart. They might not know. They know they're going to get to the point of not knowing, but not worry about that. Yeah, and often the most valuable discussions that I've been a part of in a classroom, whether it be my own classroom or even when I was at a student, is when the teacher just was like one-on-one with one kid and there was an extended kind of back and forth that really got quite deep. And at some point, this can be modelled by the teacher for the pupils to do to each other. And and you set up then your own sort of, we call them sort of seminar groupings, but, but you have groupings, two or three or four children who who use cue cards, test themselves and all that, but also become philosophical groups that discuss the subjects and feedback to the rest of the class, what they've been discussing out of class and and, and those things, whether it's in the target language, if it's German or, you know, and they're talking about Goethe or, or whatever it happens to be, you know, they're pulling all those things together and you've got them to the point where you've given them the space and structure how they can work by themselves as groups away from it. So give them the space to feed back into class. So you model it, et cetera, et cetera. And again, this isn't right at the start of schooling. This takes years of modeling and building up towards. Now, are there any guides or lists of guides? Because we've touched on some practical ideas here, but you said there's just so much that goes into it. These 
years and years of instruction to build students up to these points. Are there any guides or anything that touch on these topics that you particularly draw on? How do you know how to set up all these Socratic circles and your authentic ways to assess essays or whatever it may be? What advice do you have for teachers looking for these ways to, to do this? Yeah, I mean, there's, there is a lot of material that's worth digging into. There's the work that's quite interesting, I think. I've got it here. The Well-Educated Mind by Susan Wise Bauer, A Guide to the Classical Education You Never Had. This, this book is, is big in America and homeschooling circles, but it gives um, sort of an idea of how to do homeschooling for secondary and younger age. And that, that's quite got some interesting things, and it's based on the trivia. There are lots of other sort of semi-textbooks and, and things that you can use based on the trivium. So if you, you just look up trivium, number one, you'll get a heavy metal band. <laughs> number two, you'll start to open up a world of books out there that talk about grammar and, and dialectic and, and, and rhetoric. There's a great book called You Talking to Me by Sam Leith, that that's, talks about the structure of rhetoric that's really good. So if you're thinking about how to teach rhetoric, that that's a, a really nice way into it. Obviously, there's Aristotle as well, <laughs> you know, the art of rhetoric. This is what I mean. As soon as you start to open it up, you've got so many things out there. David Crystal's grammar books are great on English grammar, you know, and, and all these things start to open up to you. So there, there's a almost too much material out there in fact and and obviously each subject has its own grammar and its other things going on there in terms of debates and how to run debates a lot of the work i got is by again looking at debating societies some of the oldest go back in universities so i think glasgow university in scotland is one of the oldest in the in the country and Ox, oxford union as well so the glasgow and oxford unions you can get lots of material from them about how to set up debates and all that. But there's also things like the English Speaking Union who have lots of material and they do speeches and debates. They run throughout the world. I think the British Council support their work around the world. So there, there are a plethora of ways into this. Logical fallacies, teach logical fallacies, you know. You can go on Wikipedia and there are sort of thousands of logical fallacies and, and you start to teach these things and there are little books. Oh God, there's a, a picture book for, I haven't got it here, but it's a picture book for, for primary age kids on logical fallacies, you know. So as soon as you get into it, you you, you find a whole network of, of really useful and interesting things. But the thing you've got to keep in mind, what are the three things I'm looking for? I'm looking for stuff on knowledge and how to teach it. So I'm looking for stuff on logic and or dialectic and or debate and or dialogue and or speech. And I'm looking for things about how to, the rules of expression in this particular subject area that I'm teaching. How do I go about that? So anything from exams, sort of text, how to write good answers in this exam all the way through to essay writing and other things like that. There's huge amount of stuff. But the three things give you a, a focus on what to look for. Definitely. It's a fantastic framework. Are there any schools that are really shining beacons of, of this approach, do you think? Well, apart, apart from the, the obvious one, which I think we could talk about, with, which, which is the, the, the sort of great liberal arts schools, and I've already given Oxford as an example of that, and, but also 
the great liberal arts tradition in America, which feeds into or did feed into, it's perhaps in decline, unfortunately, in some universities now, but Harvard, Yale, all these sort of places. So at that level, and then the sort of older schools of Northern Europe, including Eton and, and places like that, you know, have have these sorts of ways of approaching education at their hearts, though have been messed around with perhaps in more recent times. Work that I've done with, I would mention two schools, one one secondary and one primary in England, and that's Turton School in Bolton and Ilfracombe Junior School down in Devon. I say those two because I think, I mean, the two I worked with a long time ago, so I've been working with them for a long time. And I think approached it in a way that really made it come to life very quickly and and uh, keep doing some great work around the trivium now. And, and there are many others, but if I had to mention two, those are the two I'd mention. If there is, was, say, six books or so that teachers wanted to read or should read to get a, a deeper understanding of I guess the development of these ideas around education that has occurred over time, or even just the development of Western thought or something, you know, I can think of few people who are better positioned to answer this question than yourself, who's, who's gone through so much. What are your recommendations for, for what people check out? Right. There's Lawton and Gordon's History of Western Educational Ideas. There's something I talked about a bit in when we were talking about cricket, and that's I think the best book on cricket is Beyond a Boundary by C.L.R. James. And it talks about race and culture from a, a West Indian perspective, but also talks about colonialism and, and education and and things like that. He's a really interesting guy, C.L.R. James. Mortimer Adler, his book, Great Ideas, where you can see a lot of stuff about grammar, dialectic and rhetoric in there. Marshall McLuhan's book on the classical trivium. Dorothy L. Sayers, I've already talked about, is a good starting point, The Lost Tools of Learning, and that you can find online. And although I think her model in the end is not quite right, it certainly opens up the differences between the three arts. The All the Essays of Montaigne, who I, I've got a whole chapter on Montaigne in, in, in the trivium, the Yuval Levin's book, The Great Debate on Payne versus Burke, and why that must might be of interest to people. But the relationship that I take there about tradition and radical challenge to the tradition. And then we'll just pick it up here. Richard Tarnas, The Passion of the Western Mind, Understanding the Ideas that Have Shaped Our Worldview, was hugely interesting and, and important for me when reading about and writing the Trivium book. And then Mary Beard recommended a book to me, and I'll recommend this book to you now. And it's a hell of a hell of a beast. It's called The Classical Tradition by Grafton, Most, and Setis. And it's a barnstormer. Look at that. But I'd recommend that one as well. So th- this this is kind of my way into the trivium, all these all these books and, and lots of others there. And if you're interested in any others. If you look at the back of my book, there's a huge bibliography of all the books I covered. But those those would be perhaps my oh David Deutsch, the beginnings of infinity, and one one of the books I really one doing the studying because I was in the um, British Library. I got to look at and use 
Johnson's original English dictionary, his his first copies of the English dictionary. So I got to see and the, the original thing itself. That was quite special. What are you most excited about at the moment? Oh, I mean, apart from the obvious, <laughs> which is the end of this bloody COVID stuff and the possibility of it ending. In in education terms, I'm quite excited by the work about curriculum and the way that curriculum has become quite central to approaches in, in England now that curriculums become the important area. So instead of years and years of talking about how to teach and how to show off as a teacher, you know, the the outstanding Ofsted lesson, as it was known as, you know, and the one-off lesson and the managerialism with people coming in and telling you, have you taught an outstanding lesson and et cetera, et cetera. Moving on from that, it's become about what we're teaching and why. And that excites me. And it particularly excites me because there ain't no obvious answers some of the time. <laughs> especially in the humanities and arts. And the final question, Martin, and the the question with which you started the book is really, is there a school worthy of you sending your daughter to? Is there one now? Right. I, I don't know, you know. I mean, put it this way. I'm, she is much happier at the school she's at now than she has been probably at any other. I mean, and also that we are happy with in terms of, some of the opportunities she's have had there. And I'll give you an example of this on the, the more non-traditional side of things. She's at a state school, but she's doing Latin and she's doing ancient history as GCSE examination subjects, amongst others. She's doing music and drama and she's doing all the sciences. She's doing German. She's doing English and maths, of course, and, and English literature and language. So she's got a lovely range of subjects. She has to do PE. She has to do all those sorts of things as well. She also has been in many school plays, about three or four a year. She's in the school choir, and there are two school choirs for her age group. And she's been involved in extracurricular competitions and things like that with the choir. She was going to have to go to Croatia this year, but can't. She would have done a German exchange this year, but can't. She did a trip to Rome just before it all went wrong this year. That was part of her ancient history and Latin work. So in terms of the school she's at now, the opportunities in class and out of class are superb. And therefore, I'm pretty happy about it. And she's making some good friends there and having a good time. And I think all those things sort of sum up. I'm pretty happy with this school she's at now. Martin Robinson, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a mammoth mammoth discussion. It's quite late for you. You've been a w- real warrior. And I'd, I'd just like to thank you for doing so much research and for bringing, bringing to me and to your other readers and to the listeners of this podcast, the idea of the Trivium, because I think it brings together many of the threads of education that people will be familiar with through their own experiences, but also for listening to this podcast through many of the guests that we've had on the, on the podcast. And I think it's incredibly valuable to be able to bring these threads together, see the ways that they balance each other out and see that we actually need all of them and to have that framework to help us 
conceive of how we are designing our schools, our curricula, and our teaching. So for me, it's been helpful. It's going to help me. It's going to be a framework that I continue to use, I know, as I move forward. And next year, I'm moving into a new school, and it will be great to have this enriched schema to understand my practice and what I'm trying to do. So thanks for your time today, Martin Robinson. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. And it's great to be able to chat for ages and ages about this stuff. And there's so much, the, the thing about it, once you dig into it, there is so much more. And I know that there are schools in Australia and New Zealand, by the way, who are using the Trivium model, some of which have contacted me and, and said that they're, they're doing it. So, so reach out to your local, I mean, local thousands of miles probably away, <laughs> but that's a, that's a small fry in Australia. But do do so. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this first part of episode 48 of the ETRL podcast with Martin Robinson. And a reminder to keep listening through to the appendix for Martin and my extended discussion on his career, creativity and constraints, his methods for drama teaching, the shift towards managerialism that Martin saw over his 20 years as a teacher, and how the birth of his daughter propelled him into his deep, deep educational explorations. I feel that it's a super valuable part of the podcast too. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com, inclusive of the link to the John Cat website, and remember that code ERRR30 for 30% off any book from John Cat. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it, and if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the Eat Love podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other Eat Love episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. I do hope you stay on for the remainder of the podcast and I'll chat to you at the end. Now, here's that appendix with Martin Robinson. What were you like as a student? Bad. Tell me more. I, I, was, I, I wasn't happy at the school I was in and the school I was in was chaotic. And I'm, this, I'm talking about secondary school here, so high school. Chaotic, I mean, there was bullying, rife fights. There were motorbikes in the corridor. I remember on one occasion the, a, a teacher's car being tipped onto its roof. Just just absolute chaos. And I'm not saying I was innocent in all this, by the way, but I, I wasn't involved in the teacher's car or the motorbike. And then a new head came in and his job, he, he saw it, was to get rid of the dross, the difficult ones. And I think I was one of the difficult ones. And in the end, I ended up out of that school with hardly any qualifications at the ripe old age of 16 and um, looking for the job market in nineteen early 1980s Britain where there wasn't many jobs either. <laughs> so I blame, I blame the school for everything, but I wasn't, I wasn't a good boy by any means. So how does one go from a school experience like that one to wanting to become a teacher? I wouldn't have even dreamt of being a teacher when I left school. I had various jobs. I, I sold double glazing. I worked in a market stall. I ran a mobile disco and promoted bands and things like that. So I worked in cataloging in a library. I think I also did think, yeah, things like doing temp jobs. So ending up in all sorts of places, you know, for a week, just a week here and there. I worked in a factory, all sorts of things. So, and traveled. I traveled, hitchhiked around Europe a few times on very little money, ran out of money, and then had to get my way back home and, and things like that. So, 
teaching academe all that was completely beyond me and then i saw an advert in the face i don't know if you know the face was a trendy magazine it was like a sort of glossy music fashion mag in the sort of early to mid 80s and it's thing called cultural studies and had an advert for this degree course at the northeast london polytechnic and i sort of read that and looked at it and thought that that looks cool i could do a bit of that and went down to wrote wrote a application and they said come and talk to us we'll see what we think and i went and talked to them and they accepted me on the course despite me not having any a levels or anything like that and i had a, a whale of a time in that's what took me to london really came out of that this is a long long answer came out of that <laughs> experience so with a a degree in cultural studies, unable to do anything work-wise at all of any use. And then, so I finally got a job selling advertising space. And I was selling advertising space for a magazine called Marxism Today. So it's, it was a sort of clash of communism and capitalism. I was the sort of capitalist wing of the Communist Party and working for them for a, for a bit. And then I got headhunted by the Guardian newspaper who wanted me to sell advertising space for them. And I thought, do I really want to be a salesman for the rest of my life? And because when I was studying at the Northeast London Poly, we'd set up a theatre company and an arts company, and I was artistic director and all that. And it got me into the arts, gave me a qualification, I suppose, to do a PGC course in drama because I had a lot of experience practically of doing drama. And that's, I thought... Well, teaching, teaching drama particularly, that would be a sort of noble thing. Fantastic. Now, something that was interesting in the book is you talked about the environment of, around drama education when you first got into teaching, and you described it as educational drama. Could you tell us a bit about the educational drama that you encountered and the issues that you had with that? Yeah, so I think it's easier to explain what I think drama should be, which is teaching the art of theatre. And I, I went towards drama teaching thinking that it was mainly about teaching the art of theatre. When I got to the PGCE course, I sort of slowly realised for a lot of drama teaching, it's about not teaching the art of theatre, but was a way of educating children about issues. So they would have issues about drugs, about suicide and, you know, all, all these various thematic ideas. And children would work on this in order to have empathy for characters and, and situations. And a lot of it was very political as well, which I wasn't against. You know, I'd, I'd come from <laughs> a sort of left wing background, so I wasn't against the politics of it. But I was sort of finding my way and thinking, well, this number one, it's it's not that interesting. And number two, it's not creating great actors. And what I wanted to do was create great actors, dramatists, directors, lighting technicians, everything like that. And it was about creating good artists. And so I worked in a different way to them. I, I sort of worked in a more theatrical way. And there are others out there who worked in a sort of more theatrical way. But at that time, there was, and this is late 80s, early 90s, there was a huge discrepancy in the two sides of drama teaching. And there were big arguments and, and the two sort of doyens of, of both sides was David Hornbrook on one side, who was for theatre and 
Dorothy Hethcote on the other side, who was for, well, a more educative approach to drama, if you like, drama for learning. And I, I was more solidly on the side of Hornbrook, I suppose. And I was very excited by the whole thing, which got into a sort of progressive traditionalist sort of battle, if you like. But no, I, I loved it. And because exams came in in the subject, they became more theatrical, if you like. So it was about theatre knowledge, theatre skills. Then it's become through that in the UK, more of a thing now to teach theatre, though there's still a lot of educative drama going on out there, of course, as well. From this, you developed this approach to drama teaching, which you called fragments of movement, movement and fragments of text, which I thought sounded really interesting. And I, I realised when I was reading the book, oh, we haven't talked about drama teaching all that much in the ERRR. <laughs> Apart from once, I think, I think Dylan William mentioned it once and talked about how, I think he talked about how drama is one of the disciplines in which assessment is most authentic. Don't quote me on that, though. I'll have to go back and, and revisit it. But I, it was something along those lines. And it, it made me think, oh, I wonder what relationship there is between Martin starting out in drama and writing this book, Trivium 21C, which we're talking about today. And so that was interesting. I'll actually search out what Dylan said. I think I got it in my notes. But yeah, tell us about these fragments of movement and fragments of text. Okay, so so one one of the major things about drama teaching when I was working in the subject, and still it's there, but not as major, was the group improvised project. And improvisation was central to drama teaching, a lot of drama teaching. And if you approach it with a theme, let's say the kids decide, can we do drugs? And I say, no, you can't do drugs. No, no, it's a theme, not do drugs, sir. Can we do drugs? And I say, well, yeah, but I know exactly what you're going to do. And they say, no, no, we're going to do it different. And so they go off and do it different. And they come back with the same play that every other group who does drama about drugs does it. And you always know, you know, the central character is going to die. They're going to lift him up in the air, yeah, above their heads. And the, the lights are going to go red, you know, and then you're going to cut the scene to a gravestone, you know, and they're all standing around the gravestone weeping and, hey, kids, don't do drugs. And uh, no matter what, you know. And half those kids are on drugs anyway, you know. So it's like you know, they, you talk about authenticity, which is which is an interesting word. So so it's not authentic. It's not truly about what they feel. I'd be more interested if they came up with a play about doing drugs or did drugs on the stage, and and sort of anyway. No, perhaps not. This is sorry, that's illegal and very naughty. But what I was interested in is not having them come up with the same old, same old stuff. So we started, and I don't know if you know, I was going to say William Burroughs, but I'll start with David Bowie. David Bowie wrote songs by cutting bits up of text, throwing them up in the air, seeing where they landed, and then you've got heroes. You know, it sort of comes out like that. And, and so cutouts, they're called. So my thing, I, th I was quite enamored by this, and it's sort of from Dadaist art and various other, other methods. But William Burroughs is a big one, so he wrote lots of his novels like this as well. You have cutouts of movement, cutouts of music, cutouts of text, and you throw them all in the air and see where they land. And that's kind of where we went. But we started with movement mainly, and we just move and create 
sorts of framed moments that seem to work, but have no context. We had no idea what this is about. And then we'd sort of put them together with other framed moments and play around with them. And then you'd start to feel, well, what could this be about? Well, this is a sad character. This is a happy character. This is a strange moment. Then we put some music in or words in or both. And then, oh, right. So I used to use the analogy of the marble when the sculptor gets the marble, great lump of marble, and, and she she or he starts chipping away at it. And suddenly, it was suddenly, after all this chipping away, this thing emerges from it. So, you know, like it was already there. And that that's kind of what we're wanting to do. So really work on themes that emerged rather than were thought about by a teenage brain beforehand. So the the idea of the art, if you like, emerged and the themes would we become aware of what it was all about very near the end of the process rather than the beginning of the process. And it's it's terrifying as hell, but very exciting. That's great. And I guess the one of the themes that came out in, in that section of the book for me and that you explicitly talked about was the idea of the value of constraints. And I recall one of the constraints you placed on your students was you banned chairs. And I guess also the the idea of having fragments and kind of just letting things fall, it's in some ways that's a constraint as well because you're, well, you're constraining yourself in terms of the form, yeah, in, in a different way to the way people would usually constrain themselves, which is in, I don't know, a linear approach to trying to write a script or something perhaps. Did, did you want to comment on that at all? Yeah, so so the, the constraints are vital. I mean, I worked with this great improviser called Ken Campbell who said, you want to know... What the answer to creativity is, it's constraints, Martin. Constraints. You need constraints. And he gave various examples of this. But he said, you know, if you ask two actors to stand and say, right, have a conversation, they they're very, very, find it very difficult. But if you say, right, now every word you say mustn't have the letter E in it, then that gives you a constraint to think about and gets you into the game, if you like. So that that's how the constraints work. So we're saying, right, you know, three chords make a song is better than have anything you want, you know, so to constrain you or or here's, here's the form of a limerick. Now you can write a poem. So, yeah, the, the constraints work in that way to focus the mind and find out more things than having total freedom does in other words you find freedom through constraints <laughs> and the freedom to express yourself more comes through those various constraints so that that's how it works in terms of the fragments the fragments give you something to focus on fragments of movement i mean what i'm talking about are things like a classic one i always use is put your hand in front of your face and follow the hand and move around in in one spot and now follow it now you can take it for a walk. It goes further away. Where's it going? And then when you go past someone else, put your hand in front of their face, they start following you and then stop. Right now, that's your beginning, middle and end. Let's see it. And that's it. So that's that's the sort of real abstract place you start. By the end of it, you've got a play that works in any genre, any type of play. It can be naturalistic. It can be weirdly abstract, anything like that. And the reason for getting rid of chairs was going to, you sit in the drama studio and the chairs come out and they sit on the chairs. And I call it top of the head acting. All the kids sort of slump in their chairs 
and all you can see is the top of their heads, you know, and they're acting to their feet. And they're doing this wonderful bit of emotive acting, you know, got tears coming out of their eyes and all this sort of stuff going on. And it's always miserable with teenagers. And I, I tend to go for different things than misery all the time. But anyway, that, and it's coming this miserable show to their feet and their feet are getting the you know best seat in the house. All I'm getting is the top of their bloody heads. And I'm saying, that's rubbish, you know, and they're giving all their all. And you're saying, I can't see the damn thing. <laughs> you know, so I got rid of chairs. So they had to, even if they were going to pretend to sit down, it was so painful to pretend to sit down on a chair that isn't there. They, they just stopped doing it in the end, you know, and we had more movement more physicality and can i say particularly i don't know if this was the reason i did it, it certainly wasn't but boys loved it very physical work and very freeing if you like and at points it became like another hero of mine pina bausch sort of dance theater it would move into all sorts of different realms and you'd find very beautiful moments very funny moments all these sorts of things and those constraints allowed you to see things you'd never would have seen had you not had them. I found that Dylan William quote. It comes from his book, Leadership for Teacher Learning, which I read prior to interviewing him. I can't remember. That was probably a couple of years ago now. But it was it was kind of to do with authentic assessment beyond the school. So he, here's a quote, and I think it comes from page 29, but maybe that's the PDF page. Anyway, in the mid-1980s, when my colleagues and I asked a group of business people to identify the skills they really wanted from school leavers, after a significant amount of debate, they came up with a list. We then looked at the school curriculum and found that only one school subject encompassed it all, drama. The business people had identified communication skills, confidence, collaboration, creativity, self-control, discipline, problem-solving, tolerance, and empathy, all capabilities that were developed in good drama teaching. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, all, all those things are are important to drama. Drama teaching, I don't know if they're transferable. I, I, you know, I don't know if the creativity in the drama room or can suddenly sort of find its way into the chemist's studio or something like that, or, or workshop or, or, or laboratory. That's the word I'm looking for. So the, the, the theatrical laboratory doesn't necessarily become creativity somewhere else. And communication, well, certainly communication that we were looking at would be rather frowned upon, I think, in the, in the middle of a business meeting. But I don't know. I mean, it's all there, but whether it makes students more employable, certainly parents certainly thought that it did. But that, you know, but kids change a lot over the secondary years, particularly, you know, they, they come in at 10, 11 years old, 11 years old and sort of leave 18, 19. That, that's a hell of a journey. They've gone on anyway. And perhaps some of the, sometimes they're asked to do drama by their parents because it might bring them out of themselves and you get this sort of room full of shy people who you try and do your best with. But yeah, I mean, you can pretend to be someone else, I suppose. That, that helps. I don't know. I don't know if it's, I think it's relevant to what he said there specifically to drama. I don't know if that makes it transferable to other domains. Yeah. I'm not sure if he was suggesting that drama teaches kids to, you know, be able to do all these things in a business environment. I think he was more highlighting that it's a subject that encompasses all these things and therefore maybe we can look at it, look to it as a model in a similar way that you talk about in your book kind of, how can we get all these things into all the subjects to create, you know, enable students to have these skills in a variety of areas? Yeah, I'd be interested in following that up. We'll have to, we'll have to ask him. We'll tweet him. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is and you start to 
think about the constraints of teaching and what teaching involves. And so my drama thing, movement, emotion, intellect, performance, the four words certainly gave a structure that's repeated again and again and again, that students start to work in that process by osmosis, if you like. They, they, they feel it rather than have to be taken through it all the time. It's just the repetition of doing these things that becomes second nature to them. And perhaps there are ways of doing things all the way through that can start to take over. And that, that would be part of my approach to Trivium, yeah. We can talk about it more. But first, in the book, you, you wrote about how during your time in teaching, you saw a bit of a shift and you saw a shift towards students being more like consumers and requiring more spoon feeding and things like that. Can you tell us about a bit about that shift and maybe what you think caused it? What, what caused it is probably two things, and that that's high accountability systems. So a lot about league tables, exam tables things like that, and Ofsted based on data, all those things there. And also about exams, having exam rubrics and, and mark schemes and all this stated in, you know, to, to get a, an A grade, you need to do this, 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 and this, a B grade is this, 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 and this, C grade is this, 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 and levels and all these other things that started to come in that mechanized the whole thing and took it away from actually teaching subjects and more about ticking boxes and the box ticking exercise and the the grades that come out of it and making sure they got those grades turned a lot of teachers into well, a sort of more mechanistic robotic approach you know so that we've got to get them through these hoops we've got to get them through there and and demonstrate it all the time and the plethora of of middle managers as well <laughs> that seem to spring up all over the place who come up with um new initiatives all the time then you had to justify their new, new mid, middle management position by initiatives left right and center i know that particularly because i was one of them and having to to justify everything that was going on in the school so and and pupils became part of the same thing so so not only were teachers following that way of working but pupils were demanding to be taught to the test is this in the exam sir do we have to learn this do i need to know that and then and if you're at the point of asking if a piece of knowledge is important enough to be in the exam or it doesn't matter <laughs> and you could be talking about anything you know but it doesn't matter because it's not in the test. Well, I think you're in a worrying place. So instead of a love of learning or an, or, or an interest in learning, you're just ticking the box to get that bit of paper at the end of it and show to your next step on the ladder, which is perhaps university, college, job or whatever it happens to be. Look, I've got the qualification, right? I can now move on to that, you know. And and then it just carries on and on and on. And and universities were saying the same thing, that kids would come to them sort of demanding, yeah, but are we going to be tested on this? Do I need to know this? So, you know, that, that whole problem. So how did you deal with that as a teacher? By telling them that and telling them how disgraceful they were to even think that. So if, if one child said that to me, I'd go off on a diatribe. <laughs> how dare you? How dare you think that this beautiful nugget of knowledge I've just taught you is in the exam. It's too important to be in the bloody exam. Now shut up and, and go off that. So if you talk to some of my ex-pupils, they will recognize that part of me. I, 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 I think it's, in the end, we had discussions about everything. 
in the in the drama room that was beyond drama but all that becomes part of drama becomes part of the art becomes part of what you're talking about and i think that's the same with i was talking to someone earlier today bildung you know that the whole thing <laughs> the, the whole thing is is important education is an ecosystem it's not just passing it's not a narrow way of passing tests in order to get a school up the exam tables it's lots of other things but it's it, if it's if it's ever reduced to that then it's it's on the way out did you find that you could maintain the same teaching approach under the change circumstances like you talk about the how you would get start a diatribe when a student kind of made these comments but how did you yourself find your teaching changing if at all or if not at all during this this change yeah it got worse so <laughs> the energy had to be moved to justifying what you were doing so little things like discussions in class kids had to note them down in notebooks what was said and i had to go in there and mark that i had read what they had written about what was said in class in order to justify that i was doing marking of something or other so then that starts to take up your time which is showing you're doing your job to some someone who's above you who can then see ah oh, you've done your job Right. If it's, I've forgotten what the term was, but if it was said in class, the te the kid had to write it, and the teacher had a stamp to stamp next to it that this was said in class. Things like that, or green pens, red pens, yellow pens. You know, the I, it just got crazier and crazier, and then marking, marking, marking. So instead of picking up a load of essays and giving feedback to the whole lot, and and saying, well there's this this this, and this that lots of people come up and using visualizers and, and you know all that you had to go laboriously through every single essay and market 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 so it just becomes more and more time consuming justifying your job showing that these things are going on because the manager above you wants to see it so your energy is is dissipated into managerialism and and you're doing it to others as well as the manager don't forget so this is the joy of middle management you're moaning about the one above you but the one below you is moaning about you you know because <laughs> you're doing the same thing you're all doing it and the, and the because there were so many middle managers someone you were asking to do something you also had to do something for <laughs> So there's this sort of competitive middle management thing about, right, I'll stuff you, but I'm getting you to do this. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it just got crazy. So did that kind of thing push you out of the classroom or? Yeah. I mean, I seriously got to the point that I thought if I carry on like this, it's all going to go crazy. I'm going to have a nervous breakdown or something. I, I think that. So I had the chance of... I think the school thought the same thing about me. I, I think I got to the point where the school wasn't thinking that I was the, the best thing for them and they, I wasn't thinking the same for them. So we, we reached a mutual arrangement, if you like, of voluntary redundancy. Were you those 20 years in the same school? Most of it was in the same school, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a great, great point. Yeah, enough to drive anyone mad. Now, another thing you talked about around this time was the emergence of key competencies. Now, did these emerge as a response to this managerialism or in tandem to it? You know, what, what prompted this? And you also talked about how you felt it didn't really work. Why don't you think this approach to teaching kids to learn how to learn didn't work? It was the QCA, and that's the Qualifications and Curriculum Authority, which was a quango, government quango that had been going for a few years. 
and they had decided on a new approach to curriculum that involved key competencies and what they call personal learning and thinking skills, amongst other things. And they put together this big picture of the curriculum. So it's this huge, big picture of the curriculum with there's a, a very small line of subjects. And everything else was key competencies like globalization, communication, creative thinking, critical thinking, and all these things. And you had to sort of get into that. And then they wanted to make sure that these things were assessed and accessible. And I was approached to help them in their assessment of creativity. And so I set up a program about how to assess creativity and how it might be based on what they said creativity was, which in itself you could argue about. And we went about setting up an assessment tool and it, it worked perfectly as an assessment tool. You know, it, 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 whether it had anything to do with creativity or not is another matter, but it, the assessment tools work as assessment tools and then you can justify everything by having a very good assessment tool that assesses the teacher's opinions on something that's being said on, a, on some sort of levels basis and you move through this. So we, we did that for them and that's where I come to the conclusion that none of it works. It was nonsense because nobody's sure what creativity is to sort of then to sort of assess it to the nth degree so the child in front of you who probably thinks you know what you're doing and that's problematic they have trust in you so if you say you're level seven in creativity that child probably believes they are that they're level seven in creativity but it's bullshit it's rubbish it's nonsense it's not based on anything if we don't even know what creativity is, we certainly can't judge it in, in a very hard and fast way. And then to let the kid believe they are that. So soft skills becoming hardened is not the greatest thing in the world. So what informed my judgment of that is, is being involved in judging people on it. It makes a lot of sense. Now, somewhere within all of this, you had a daughter and the birth of your daughter. With a bit of help as well. Indeed. And this birth kind of prompted you to look, it sounded like you were already looking and thinking quite deeply about this thing, but it prompted you to look even deeper. Can you tell us about this moment in your life and, and why it propelled you to delve deeper? Yeah, I think having a child suddenly focuses your mind on education and the importance of it, not just as something you're doing as a job, but something now that is about the future of the person in front of you. And And what I mean by that is, it's something obviously I'd known about and thought about and felt before, but there's nothing like having a child and then feeling that in a completely involved way that consumes your being. That it's not just some sort of philosophical sort of think thought. It's it's an emotional, physical thought, if you like. You become or I became. I I, I can't speak for every parent, but quite a few parents who I've talked to about this say the same thing. You you become completely almost irrationally involved <laughs> in education from a different point of view and desperately want it to mean something to matter so what did you do i just became more and more disappointed by <laughs> the education i can imagine me at a parents evening I, I became completely disillusioned by the education so they, they, i put it all these things coming together so Getting disillusioned by the education my daughter wasn't receiving, 
Maybe you could maybe you could put them on a little bit of a timeline as well for us. I mean, it doesn't have to be concrete, just so we can get a sense of the order of events. I've got to try and remember when she was born now as well. <laughs> 2006. So yes, yeah, so it's about so she started at she went to she went to early years classes, which was called Sure Start, which was superb. And she was so happy there and receiving such support and, and such a wonderful group of people that my first introduction into this world, if you like, of parenting a child and working and seeing institutions, educational institutions, was really positive. When she went into her primary school, it it became a different thing. And this was also at the same time that I was thinking about the mechanical side of education, if you like, and seeing it become more spoon-feeding, more about results and, and all those things. And I I became very disillusioned by the school where she was at, which also basically left her. I've written, I wrote a blog about this called the, the octagon table. I think it was called the octagonal table, the octagonal group or something like that. And the, the way that she was left to do for her own devices, there were three of them who were left to do their own things, to do worksheets and the worksheets. When they finished them, they were given another worksheet. So they worked out that if they didn't finish worksheets, that was pretty good. <laughs> and then they got told off for chatting. So that was kind of it, really. And 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 then going to parents' evenings and being told that she was blah, 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 and her target was blah, blah, blah. And one of the targets she received was she must learn to recognize sentences. And this girl had been reading for a very long time and was writing her own sentences with capital letters at the beginning and full stops at the end and, and verbs in there, whatever it had to be, you know, or even exclamatory sentences with one word and exclamation mark, whatever it happened to be. She knew sentences. And uh, just saying you don't know the child. You just And, and for whatever reason, I, I could go on, I could go on. I don't want to bore people, but the, the education, I, I became disillusioned. So we think thought about home educating. And I think this is when I started to look at other things, thinking, right, if you're going to home educate, what do you do? And I did some research into home education, and which opened out a new world to me. How old was your daughter at this time? She would be six, seven. And how old were you? (laughs) That's a maths question. (laughs) So all this, I mean, this is the other thing, which is all this is happening as as a my second midlife crisis my first midlife crisis i ended up married my my second midlife crisis <laughs> i end up losing losing my will to live no <laughs> um leaving my work and writing a book and thinking about homeschooling and all that, those sorts of things so i think there's two midlife crises one when i reached 40 and this one was when i was coming up to 50 yeah so I think this is all it's all about that. Thanks, Martin. I, pr- I appreciate you answering my question about your age because you can understand this podcast is very personal for me and I'm always trying to understand my own life through the through the lenses of others. So just trying to position myself, work out if I'm if I'm lined up for the to hit my midlife crises at the right times. Well, you you look young enough not to have reached any of them, but I'll tell you one of them I, I reached. There's another I think it comes every decade actually. So if I look at my twenty ninth year, that's when I went into teaching. So that that was another midlife crisis. (laughs) So 29, 48, 49. And now I'm supposed, I'm sort of, I've forgotten how old I am, 57, I think. 
So it's just, I'm due another one very soon. But COVID's taken over that sort of crisis. <laughs> Not my own little crisis. Anyway, go on. So I'm fascinated by this process because it's 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 really noble, I think. You know, you saw that your, your child wasn't getting the education that you thought she deserved. So you decided to start really exploring and taking it upon yourself to think about, you know, what should that education look like and how can I ensure that she gets it? So I, I'm... I want to dive just a little bit more into this. What did you do and when did you start? Like maybe it was at the start of her, I don't know, prep or transition. I don't know what you call it in the UK, the year after kinder or year one or something like that. How long did it take you to decide to do homeschooling and what did you do to prepare? Right. So it took me a long time to actually get around to homeschooling and I'll, I'll come to that because it's, it's, it's a slightly longer story because she went to another school. As well. So we took her out of one school, put her in another school and then hoiked her out of that one and put her into homeschooling. (laughs) And by that time, homeschooling was probably too late. But the structure of homeschooling, if you go if you go on websites on homeschooling, you'll find a lot of material that is based on Christian education and America. And a lot of it is probably disillusioned Republicans. So it's got this sort of strange edge to it, which is quite fascinating, but has a health warning, in other words. And I'll mention for listeners, this is being recorded on the day of the US presidential election in 2020. So it's a nice connection there as well. <laughs> I, like, I like to be international. So it, yeah, so f- very interesting. And it's interesting that COVID has actually coincided with more people taking their kids out of public education around the world, apparently. But uh, I'd be interested to see what those reasons are behind that. But this is what brought me first across the Trivium, because the Trivium is big, thanks to two major pieces of work, one of which is The Lost Tools of Learning by Dorothy L. Sayers, which is available online. And it's, it's worth looking at because that has spawned lots of movements, particularly in America, but worldwide, on Trivium education. And another one's by Sister Miriam Joseph called the Trivium. And that gives you a sort of Christian angle to it as well. So so pull those things together, homeschooling, Christianity, America, trying to take their kids away from state education, I expect that that's the reason, into a more Christian education. That That took me into Trivium. And what I found in Trivium was something slightly different than perhaps was being found by those people. I don't mean those people in a disparaging way. I mean those people who found it in that way. So I've got a lot of affinity to the Trivium, but I've also got my own views on it. Mm. Now, within the book, it was very clear that you'd read an enormous amount of literature. Where did this start and end and how did it fit within this timeline of thinking about your daughter's education and things like that? Oh, God. She's still at the first school. And I am on Twitter and I'm starting to explore the trivium on Twitter by saying, well, there's this, this and this. And someone called Ian Gilbert comes across me there and he said, oh, this is interesting. Have you thought about writing a book? And I said, no, I can't write. I don't think, you know, I left school at 16. I don't think of myself as a writer or anything like that. And he said, no, give it a go. And I said, okay, I, I mean, forever great. We've we've had our differences over the years, but I'm forever grateful for him for this opportunity. And 
he got me a publishing contract and he said, how long is it going to take you to write it? And I said, two months. <laughs> how wrong was I? And that came together with doing voluntary redundancy and all that, which was a package after 20 years of teaching that was enough to see me over a couple of years. And so I, I worked basically as became the main carer, not in terms of spending more time caring, but but main carer in terms of taking our daughter to school and, and collecting her from school and, and giving her snacks and perhaps doing a bit more cooking. But I don't mean caring any more than my partner, obviously. So that gave me time. So I started to write this book that was going to take me two months that in the end took me a year and a half. And I thought it was going to be easy, but then I found out that there's more to the trivium than the simple thing I thought it was. And that opened out. So the, the book is written and it opens up the trivium to me and I'm writing it as I went through the process of it opens up more and more layers. And so it's like an onion, actually. It, it goes back over itself again. And it, well, three, at least three times, of course, being the trivium, but it goes back over itself saying, oh, no, there's this now. Oh my God, there's this and there's this. And I got free membership of the British Library. This is where Karl Marx wrote Das Kapital, you know, it's, uh, and all the books ever published in the sort of the English language, I think, and, and perhaps even more are, are there since the beginning of time. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary place. And because I was writing something that was going back to really old books, I was ensconced in the rare books section, antiquity the rare books and antiquarian section, which was amazing. And I'd go there every day. I'd drop my daughter off at school, get the tube to London Bridge Station, and then get another tube from London Bridge to the library and spend my day there until I had to come back to pick up my daughter from school. And and so it really was the book that drove this reading because I was I was trying to get a sense for it. I was like, is this just like an incredibly well-read dude who's been reading his whole life and then decided one day to write a book and wrote it in two months? Or or was it really the book that was the impetus? So it sounds like the book really drove things. Yeah, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it's um, it's not the work of a genius. It's the work of somebody finding stuff out and finding that there was always something else to find out. And this became a problem, of course, is when to stop. <laughs> well, that's that's another story. But um, the book drove it. And finding out as soon as you come up with something and realize that it's got a few, I think, I think the book covers about 3,000 years or something ridiculous overall, that there is so much within each of these things that the Trivium covers that um, really it's extraordinary to unearth things because the trivium isn't isn't a theory it's it's a tradition i'm asking lots of questions about writing and things like that because my head i've obviously just been writing a book and my head's very much in this space so apologies to, to any listeners for whom this doesn't seem particularly relevant but how did you manage all of the stuff you're reading remembering it organizing those ideas ordering them, trying to work out what to keep in and throw out. Did you develop a process? Did you start with something, some really messy process? Or, and was it refined by the end? Or um, do you just have an amazing brain? Or what was it? Uh, if anyone who's ever worked with me knows, the process is chaotic. And it starts with fragments again. I do, I, I do fragments. I, I, and throw it all up in the air and see where it lands. 
and and try and sort of link it together with things and 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 make connections and not worry about not knowing so i don't know yet what this is about i don't know i don't get it and i kept saying to myself i don't get it i don't get it i've got to find more and that that drove me towards things more things and more things and then oh my god there's other things here and i had to show chapters to people and they were looking back at me and saying are you mad <laughs> what's going on here you know and that sort of thing and then, so in the end i said no Lord, i'll not show you anything until i had something there and basically it was a lot of reading and notes that sort of hung together in a in a minor narrative and then get yourself a good editor peter young who was my editor looked through it and he asked me some questions and that really helped and and challenged me and focused me and helped me find the story of what this was and of course one of the stories that came out of that was the story as teacher of pupil of parent as as me you know <laughs> and that that really helped focus that but at the beginning it was all about it, it started off as a, a textbook manual thing that you usually get as teachers you know here's the trivium this is how to do it and things like that and it it wasn't ever going to be that because I, I can't I can't face that sort of thing. I hate reading stuff like that. I, I, and and to write it, it was it was more writerly, if you like. It was more written as a, as a book rather than a manual. How has this project changed you? I think it's made me more broad-minded than I used to be. I, I was particularly rabid politically on on one side rather than another. And I think I'm more understanding of where people come from and why they might come from different things. And I, I, I know less now, I know more, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm less sure, which isn't necessarily a good place to be, but I find that quite humbling in some ways that actually I look back on myself when I was more sure and sometimes I miss being that person. But I, I find that hopefully at some point a wisdom will arrive that I can then rise above my unsurety and think, well, there's another level to this going on somewhere. And I think I'd like to reach that level. And it might come from just listening to a piece of music, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where it's going to come from. But a sort of being at peace with things would be nice rather than at the moment, I'm not. <laughs> I hope you can reach it. Uh, I definitely mirror that. I mean, my life was much more um, exciting when I was a radical environmentalist. That was great. Such a sense of purpose and like I was saving the world and doing the right thing. And God, if I could only have that again. But once you, yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah, you lose it. You, <laughs> that's funny. Better let you get to sleep. Yeah, it's been an honor. Thank you. Thanks, Martin. Hopefully we'll get to cross paths again someday. Yeah, be good. See you, mate. See you later. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this supplement to today's podcast and the whole podcast as well. Thanks for sticking around to the end. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.